Digital Gonzo, episode 113, recorded Thursday the 20th of December 2012, an unexpected journey, theatrical edition. My dear Frodo, you asked me once if I had told you everything there was to know about my adventures. While I can honestly say I have told you the truth, I may not have told you all of it. Bilbo Baggins, I'm looking for someone to share in an adventure. I can't just go running off into the blue. I am a Baggins. Wait! Of Baggins. Bilbo, allow me to introduce Feely, Kiddy, Oin, Doin, Darlin, Barlin, Biffer, Buffer, Bumper, Dory, 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 and the leader of our company, Sorin Oakenshield. The misty mountains cold To dungeons deep And caverns old The pines were roaring On the height The winds were moaning Welcome back to Digital Gonzo, continuing the Lord of the Rings movie specials. We now turn the page and go right back to the beginning with the first part of a brand new film series, possibly the most eagerly awaited follow-up since The Phantom Menace, which was incidentally the first episode of Digital Gonzo. For format's sake, we will call this episode 8 in the Lord of the Rings podcast, and any future episodes will continue that numbering. This is because our reviewing journey has been episodic, and it's my suggestion that new listeners go back and check out those other podcasts first. You'll get to know us better and why we love these films. Tonight's podcast will be deviating from how we handle the Lord of the Rings in that it's the first impressions roundtable. We don't have access to the -the behind-the-scenes materials, the extended editions, commentaries, or upcoming films. We don't have the deep familiarity with every frame and every line or an overview of the entire saga. In short, we have to approach with different tactics. When we know more, a year from now, there will be an Unexpected Journey Extended Edition podcast, followed by a theatrical edition roundtable of film two, The Desolation of Smaug, and so on until they are all done sometime in 2015. My guests round the table, still at my side after seven episodes, Chris Eason of Gameburst. At your service. If we're very lucky, Sharon Shaw of Dorkcast will be joining us soon. She's been delayed by trains. Elrond and Galadriel, as it were. 
which I suppose makes me Gandalf. Joining them from the Return of the King podcast is our Gonzo Planet web wizard, which I guess makes you Saruman, Paul Gibson. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Unless you want to be Radagast. No. No. <laughs> and the new addition to this long-expected party from Game Burst is Mr. James Batchelor. Hello. So which fresh-faced young dwarf would you like to be? I'll be Bofa. Okay, yeah, good choice. Very good. Okay, Bofa. So I've read a lot of people on Twitter and elsewhere complaining that the Hobbit book is shorter than any of the three Lord of the Rings instalments, so logically we should have got one tight film rather than two, and certainly not three. Now, if you didn't like the first film, that's fair enough. In terms of box office broad appeal, it's not the equal of any of the Lord of the Rings movies. You can also accuse the studios of being greedy and wanting more films to get a higher return on their investment. This is still redundant, as it's what studios do. They are a business. Accusing them of having their eye on the bottom line is like saying Starbucks care about making money more than making coffee. Otherwise, they would charge 50 cents a cup. But to those accusing Jackson and Weta of profiteering and fleecing the public with their multi-part story and more than one DVD of each film, especially those commenting who have not yet even seen part one, I have this to say. How fucking dare you? And Michael Gambon will back me up. The audacity... How fucking dare you? How dare you imply for even a moment that Peter Jackson and Weta Workshop's chief motivation is money? Cursory perusal of the hours of extra features will indicate to even the least observant of internet folk how immeasurably hard these people work to bring us the Lord of the Rings films. Time and again doing things the long and hard way, sacrificing body and soul in pursuit of the highest quality for a project they all believe in. Look at photos of Jackson in 1998, then again in 2003, and see what this process wrought on him over five years. Years. There are far, far easier ways of making cheaper, quicker, lazier films that hit the right tried and tested buttons with the public. This is not what these are. The reason Jackson Co. wanted three movies is to tell more of a story and ultimately keep working for longer on realising this world they helped create. There are other, far worthier figureheads for ultimate derision in cinema. Focus on those that really don't care. The general critical consensus on an unexpected journey is that much of it is superfluous. It takes too long to start up. It's by no means the equal of any of the Lord of the Rings films. It's ponderous and self-aggrandizing. It despoils the work of Tolkien. And most of all, that the 3D 48 FPS frame rate ruins the experience by looking too real, exposing the falseness of the world. If you agree with a lot of the above, then this is not the podcast for you. Whatsoever. I watched the film in 2D because I will not play the 3D game ever again. I do not care who comes up with the new technology, even the mighty Peter Jackson. This is how much I loathe the very nature of 3D, and how it has forced upon us, raping our eye sockets and ruining cinema. Thus, for me, it wasn't even a factor, because it didn't and will never happen. Fair enough. I relished every second of this film. Do not send me emails or challenges, posts or tweets telling me how much fun you didn't have, or what was wrong with it. I simply don't want to know. Mine was a different experience. Sorry, guys. Just had to get that one off my chest because I've been enduring it all week. Do you, do you feel better? <laughs> yes. Um, can, I do, can I do a mini rant? Yeah, mini rant. Go for it. People are comparing these films to the prequel Star Wars films. Mm-hmm. That is fucking stupid. Those were an abomination of cinema. These are, even if you don't like them, they are solid films. They're not out-of-touch, money-grubbing twats. 
to beat out. Uh, no, no, I'm going to bleep this one out. Okay. This is, trying to- you know what? We've been holding back on the language for weeks and weeks and weeks. I'm going to put an explicit tag on this podcast. We are allowed to swear because, frankly, I have gotten really, really incensed all week, and I'm not going to hold back on the lingo. Okay. Right. Trying to claw <laughs> even more money from and producing awful, awful films. At least... Peter Jackson, you know, he has a much more creative vision than uh, George Lucas has had in 30 years. Uh, They they don't even compare as far as I'm concerned. Maybe back when uh, Star Wars and Empire were being made, um, Lucas had a similar energy to him, but he was Mm. never that talented. Equally, I'm going to back up Chris on this, in that the, the prequels were, you know, in addition to just being manufactured for money and merchandising, they were retconned to fit the original trilogy, whereas this is an established story that does lead up to The Lord of the Rings and even stands up as a story in its own right. There was no need to kind of alter it to sort out the people that saw the original trilogy. The source material's already there. In fact, I actually, I would stop short of even calling this a prequel. It's actually, it's not. It's the first film in a saga. Um, And it was written first. What he has effectively done, he, all of them, Weta, have done, is they filmed episodes four, five, and six, (laughs) and then went back and started on episode one. But it was an episode one that always existed, rather than an episode one that they had to, as, as you say, James, had to create to fit in with this world. There was no sense of, well, if we do this, then that contradicts that. So, you know, finding themselves playing this weird game of catch up where they couldn't actually contradict it. They've got a straightforward story. All they have to do is flesh it out. The example I always give with Star Wars, not to take us too far down this rabbit hole, but the um, New Hope, the, your sad devotion to that ancient religion. 30 years, that's not that ancient. <laughs> <laughs> See, they couldn't even catch every single contradiction. Yeah. No. They're very progressive, the Empire. If it's older than 30 years old, tear it down <laughs> and put a car park in this place. They don't like antiques. Okay, so... Um, the Emperor. Did everyone see it in 3D? Yes, I saw it in 3D and in the 48 FPS. Okay. Um, anyone not see it in 48 FPS? Uh, I didn't, because um, the BFI, in their infinite wisdom, the bastion of British cinema, did not have it in 48 frames per second. I don't want to talk about this at super length, because I don't care. But other people <laughs> listening will, of course, care, and it will have actually affected them. Now, as far as I'm concerned, you folks out there, see it in 2D. Always see it in 2D. Don't play their games. Yeah. I, but- I would have seen it in 3D if they'd had IMAX 2D. Gotcha. But they don't. Hang on, so, you'd have seen it in 3D if they had IMAX 2D. Uh, I mean, uh, they would, I've seen it in, t- yeah, I would, I would not have seen it in 3D if they had IMAX 2D, but they, that. I've actually just that. booked tickets to see it in 2D the day after tomorrow gotcha. so that I can experience it properly. Okay. Yeah, I'm seeing uh, it. And next I will week. do the same. <laughs> right, very wise. Okay, so, um, briefly, what was 3D 48 frames per second like? Because a lot of people say that it wrecks it. I honestly thought it looked glorious. But I think that was just the rose-tinted eyes of someone who's going back to Middle-earth and seeing Middle-earth back on the Mm. screen again. It Honestly, it was the sharpest, smoothest film I have ever seen. But then again, I was... Sharpest and smoothest? Yeah. (laughs) Well, in in terms of, it was just, it was beautifully clear. Every shot was beautifully clear. And and it didn't, it didn't blur as much as, like, what's it, when we all went to see, um, Dark Knight Rises after um, G-Plex, mm-hmm. and you've got that massive, massive screen in the in the former IMAX. 
because you're so close to the action, everything's blurring. I saw this in the Empire Leicester Square, and everything's just beautifully clear and moves smoothly. I, I, I'm not I'm not an expert when it comes to filming techniques, but to to me, to a view of movie viewer's eyes, this was sharp and smooth, and I bloody loved it. I came out of seeing it because I, 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 I was lucky enough. We'll get this out of the way. I was lucky enough to go to the royal premiere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you did boast about that on Twitter. <laughs> I boasted about that to you, but I don't, I don't, but that was that was an intimate personal brag, an intimate than, personal, personal boast. Yeah, an intimate personal boast rather than declaring to the world my job's awesome. Um, <laughs> you just you know, did exactly that, though. No, I don't. No, but I don't. I don't mean that. I don't mean that. That was that was me being um, sarcastic, attempting to be sarcastic. <laughs> I got to see it at the uh, Royal Premiere. Again? I came out um, and, I, and I put on Twitter, just seen The Hobbit, it's fantastic. You know, it's fantastic. The first thing that people asked me was not, is it worth three films? Is it too long? How well is it paced? Is it what you expected? The first thing that people would ask me, 48 frames or 24 frames. I don't care. <laughs> I do not give a shit. And they, oh, yeah, but come on, how did it look? Good. Now move on. Yeah, that that is a bit of a stupid question to ask because you have not seen it in twenty four frames per second, so exactly. you don't know. Suppose, yeah, you would, <laughs> would have to actually all three, all of us would have to have seen it in the various different types to. Yeah. And as far as I was concerned, it looked fantastic. It actually looked very similar. Um, it seemed a little bit darker and less um, less honey coloured, if you know what I mean. Like like specifically, Hobbiton seemed like it was less rosy tinted. If that makes any sense, like yeah, if you look at Fellowship now. It's got this this gorgeous sort of sweet lightness to it. Unexpected journey, darker, more shadowy, more quiet. Although, if the latest version of Fellowship you've seen is the extended Blu-ray, they redid the colouring on it. So, oh, right. uh, no, no. I, I just watched the extended uh, the theatrical Blu-ray, which they hadn't done the colouring. Oh, they hadn't. <laughs> no, <laughs> something strange went on with it. Apparently, gotcha. Yeah, well, I think that's. I mean, in the Lord of the Rings, that's to play off the. It's, you know, incredibly sweet beginning, just to over offset the incredibly dark, yeah. second, you know, second and third chapters. So, mm. and this is the whole film is is a lot lighter. So I think they, they didn't need yeah. to emphasize it as much. A fine point. Okay. Um, with with me with the 3D, this was my last attempt at it because I don't particularly get on with it. Uh-huh. Uh, not to the extent that you don't get on with it, Alex. But I get into a vomit-filled rage. Yeah, uh, not quite that bad, but it tends to involve headaches and everything being a blurry mess. This was not the case. There was only one section of this that that I thought, because I'm I'm not fussed on 3D either way. If I go and see something in 3D, I'll enjoy it. But if you give me the choice, I won't really care either way. I'll go for whatever's cheapest or more convenient in terms of time. This, I, I enjoyed it in 3D. It was great seeing kind of, you know, the massive landscapes in 3D and seeing, you know, Middle Earth stretch out before you. The one point where it really, really ruined it, and I think it's a combination of the 3D and the 48 frames per second, mm-hmm. was the uh, Radagast Warg Scout chase. You're seeing the Wargs, the, and Radagast and his flop hoppity bunnies. <laughs> I can't remember the actual name of the, the breed. Um, they're racing across this landscape, which, 
and but they they looked detached. You can tell you can tell that all of them are CGI. So it's quite clearly a, helis, a helicopter um, shot over a sweeping landscape, mm. and then these CGI characters put in. But because of a combination of the the 3D and the the 48 frames per second, they look like paper cutouts blowing across the floor. Yeah, they yeah, looked like awesome. you know when you go to fairgrounds and the shooting ducks gallery. Yeah, and you've got layers of bushes and then separate layers of um, ducks. They looked like ducks. The, yeah, there was a few times in the film that were like that for me as well. Yeah. Um, basically, anything wide and relatively steady, I'm fine with. It's when anything's coming towards you. My eyes just go, mm. no, not seeing that properly at all. <laughs> so I think what I'm getting from this is that uh, neither version of 3D really sold anyone into thinking, you know what, this is the way forward for 3D. Uh, either so your standard 24 or your, your, your brand new 48. Uh, although, you know, for the one person who saw it in 2D, I am still convinced that 2D is the way to watch movies. I'm convinced of that now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm still... I'm, I'm not convinced either way. It's, it's, what, it, I agree it's not a step forward, but I don't think it's a massive step backwards. Right. Well, no, it's... It, technologically speaking, it is a step sideways, at least... It's it's how about this? You didn't like that? Okay, we can step back into twenty four again. Okay, right, sort it. Move on. Don't care anymore. Three D rubbish, horrible. See how completely different this is in style and tone from the previous Lord of the Rings shows. <laughs> yeah, because uh, because I don't have that overview. I don't have that assurity as to what everything yeah. means and to how mm, it um, all goes into the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I, I would really like to hear what Peter Jackson sort of his plan was for it and, and what he. You know, more more in detail than he can say at the moment what he yeah. wanted to, to accomplish with it and and what he thinks of the backlash but yeah we might not know that until the third film's out could take a while well he, he's pretty much said in the press last couple of days ah, people will get used to the 48 frames thing yeah. I, he could just have said they're internet people they bitch and moan about everything mm-hmm. which would have been valid Dear Frodo and the Fall of Erebor, the intro sequence. So what I'm going to do is, rather than us going into painstaking detail about what everything means, what everything is, and, and you know, everyone's motivations, let's just talk about what struck us about each individual moment uh, throughout the film. Anything specific which sort of stuck out in your head. Let's almost be like other movie podcasts, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is even this is more organised than most, but you know. Well, this this was where I was still adjusting, um, so it was sort of a bit of a blur, really. But I, I liked. I don't know how I feel about the bag end bit because I don't know if it was 3D or IMAX, but Ian Home looked weird. 
Um, I think I think there's an element of they've they've, um, they've had to youth him because I saw him at yeah. the at the premiere. He looks so bloody old now. Right. Seriously, like I, I, Ian McKellen looks you know as old as, you know as old as he does, but Ian Holm honestly is starting to look like um, when when Frodo catches up with him at Rivendell in the Fellowship, he's starting to look like that. <laughs> With little to no makeup, he, like, they must have, must, must have done something, either CG or makeup or whatever. I think it, it was makeup. I'd have, my yeah. brain would have gone off if it was CG, like they did with Patrick Stewart and Ian yeah. McKellen in X Men Three, that atrocity. Yeah, I'll say I think I think it probably was 3D or massive screen where it shows every single detail is sometimes yeah. not a good, uh, not a plus. Hmm. It didn't look like a perfect match for the way he looked at the beginning of Fellowship, and. Um, mm. There were, there were other things, obviously, with, with the fact that Elijah Wood turns up, and he, the years have not been kind. No. He looks like a 30-year-old man now, which is, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's appropriate, because he is, and I don't look like I did when I was 20, uh, but the Frodo we used to know, the round-faced, bright-eyed, cheery chappy, is now a sort of a tall, gaunt, goth-looking chap. <laughs> But I think he was on he was on the screen briefly enough to just to just say oh it's Frodo I remember and Frodo pre Weathertop ring everything it yeah. was good to see it. you know even uh, the, the little things like and we all knew it was coming like the fact that you know he, he picked up a book and wandered off to go and um, catch Gandalf before Gandalf arrives for the uh, the, the long expected party I loved that it was it was just a nice kind of remember this we're pay, taking we're your your back it was kind of a welcoming you back to you know this you know there's no there's nothing scary here I mean we've we've had the you know, lots of Erebor and and oh, we places we've We're never seen. About it yet. Okay, no, but by that by that point we've seen Erebor, haven't we? Um, I think yeah, at that point, yes. Well, uh, yeah, that, yeah. By that for the sake of argument, yeah. Okay, by that point, we've at least, we've seen things that we hadn't seen before mm. from the uh, Lord of the Rings films. We've seen locations and characters we hadn't seen before. To see something familiar, to see Bag End look exactly how it used to look, to see Frodo and Ian uh, and Bilbo looking almost how we remember them, it's kind of a welcome back. You know exactly what's going in. Settle down. Here we go. Here's a new adventure. With notably suitably warm music as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Um, there's also, there's a very specific point where, uh, old Ian Holm looks at a picture of young Martin Freeman as if to say I was so young back then but his looking at and approving of that image allows us to approve of in our minds ah so now we're going to young Bilbo and it's okay it's kind of like he's been given the the seal of approval as it were Mm. okay so the fall of Erebor uh, something I was really looking forward to seeing and thought that they would maybe have it referenced briefly when the dwarves came and sat down for dinner that uh, they would start talking about it. But they went all out and went for the analogue of the prologue in Fellowship. I think I, I think that was a good decision to make, to mm. kind of say, look, this is the background story. We're not going to lecture you later on history. Mm. This is the background story. This is the kind of a long time ago part that all kind of fairy tales start with. Um, and and was, appropriate and it, because in Fellowship of the Ring in the book, that's you know, when Gandalf is showing Frodo the Ring by the fire. That's when he starts talking about the what happened in the prologue. Yeah. So it's it's mm-hmm. you know kind of look. We just took this bit and we displaced it, but at the very beginning, just so you could get it historically in your mind. 
Exactly, and it, it's it's good to instantly give you a sense of the scale of this story. Mm. This isn't just if you if they'd have just done it like you know thirteen dwarves turn up, they're going to go hunting for treasure. You have no idea what's at stake. They've mentioned a dragon, but you don't really appreciate it. If you see a you know a, a town overthrown, a, you know a, a storm of fire, and a mountain emptied, a greedy king, and a people left homeless, now you think right, okay, now I understand what is at stake, what the dwarves are fighting for. Mm. Also, I'd heard the term the Lonely Mountain over and over again, but nothing can compare to actually seeing a mm. single Lonely Mountain with no range around it and going, of course, it's almost like it shouldn't be there. I'm fairly sure throughout the whole sequence you don't actually see the dragon. No, you yeah, do not see Smaug. You see, you you see the kite. Yeah. Uh, you, you do see like a tail. A bit of his leg and a bit of his tail, yeah. but, but you don't see the, his face. The small, small amount they could do get away with for the budget. Yeah, and you get the so kite, good. and then the kite yeah. burning off. Gotcha. Which is um, fantastic. Yeah, I, I really like this sequence, because A, you get to see Dale in its... Uh, oh, uh, Chris, slate. you're not allowed to say I really like anymore. Same as Josh. <laughs> I found this part entertaining, because you get to see the majesty of Dale as it was, which they, they mention a bit in the... Well, in the Lord of the Rings books, you have... Uh, Bilbo buys toys from Dale, which is supposed to be magical toys. And also, okay, did anyone notice at this point uh, Peter Jackson? Was he in? No, where was yeah, he? Sit he, he I, I don't know. I didn't see. I know he's he's in the first seven minutes of the film. Gotcha. So I assume he's in Dale, but I did not see he him. He could be a dwarf again. He could be a dwarf. Yeah. Okay. Also, uh, the sequence uh, shows the fully combat dwarves, and they they look really cool. Mm. <laughs> Definitely. As I said, there, there just aren't any films out there that, that follow the dwarven race, and so this is the beginning of the most in-depth, interesting portrayal of the dwarven race that's ever been brought to cinema. I'm, uh, I love that. Yeah, it's nice that they show sort of you know the warrior class and then the sort of the noble or you know sort of other classes through the the you know, you're looking down into the great hall bit. The scribes, the mechanics. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, that reminded me of Iron Forge. Anyone who's played Warcraft? No. Nope. <laughs> there is a place called Iron Forge. It has massive dwarves outside <laughs> in stone, and it's uh, incredibly impressive. And Odd- um, uh, I'd say more than a little based on Erebor. Oddly, but similarly, um, it reminded me of uh, Orzammar in Dragon Age Origins. Yeah. Which, oh, wow. like, like you said, like dwarves are rarely kind of explored in films and. The few RPGs I've played don't really explore the dwarves in their home, but I play Dragon Age Origins as a dwarf, and you spend the first two, three hours in the dwarven city, so Erebor reminded me of that. So it was almost, it almost made that familiar for me. I loved seeing the, the treasure chamber. It you just you... almost made me want to go back and start playing Dragon Age Origins <laughs> at the very beginning. <laughs> I've, I've, I've had that feeling for a while, but yeah. I know it's forty hours, so I'm stopping myself. I've already um, done I'm, it just, three I'm times. hoping I'm hoping Dragon Age Awakenings uh, op- wins our next game versus replay poll because um, right. that'll at least give me my Dragon Age fix. Okay. Um, no, it was it was great seeing the 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 treasure chamber. I know we'll we'll probably get a larger. A, a better um, glimpse at the treasure that that Smaug has has hoarded in the in the second and third films, but to see it here and again to get another sense of what the dwarves are after and what the dwarves are trying to reclaim, like in in my head in the book, I just pictured a small picture of a pile of treasure. In fact, I'm looking at the book now. 
the uh, the ninety. I can't tell you what the year actually. One one of the old um, ones where the, the cover art is Smaug on a pile of treasure, and it's not that big a pile. Nah. And then to see it like you know massively, you know, massive rooms and caverns of treasure was fantastic. Because I like elves, um, having Fandril and uh, the Mercury elves have a sneak peek. Their armor is interesting, and I can't wait to see more of it in the first <laughs> film. <laughs> <laughs> okay, know, let's I, hope they do I some archery as well. I yeah. thought the Elf King looked a bit like Loki from uh, he Avengers. Did, yeah, and he's riding a moose. He had a cruel, aloof face. <laughs> okay, uh, let's move on from the prologue because we've got a lot of ground to cover, long ways to go. Right, so back to Hobbiton, Bilbo Baggins, Gandalf the Grey. So this was 60 years previously. Now, regarding time compression... This is 60 years before Bilbo's party, but still they've kept that extra 17-year gap as innocuous right now. Right now, there could be still only a few weeks between Bilbo leaving the Shire and Gandalf coming back and telling Frodo that he's got to leave. But they might, by the end of this third film, say, no, there was definitely 17 years. I think you're more worked up about the 17 years than anyone else. <laughs> no, I'm not. I, just, I, I like being able to put things where they are. Yeah. This this was great. Like the transition from Ian Holm sitting on his bench blowing smoke rings again, another kind of hark back to uh, Fellowship of the Ring, um, and then well, you know, and then, then symbolically having a ring in the uh, in the sky, which automatically makes you know, brings to mind the ring that we know he's going to find. Mm. Um, transitioning to Martin Freeman and having the first intercha- interaction between you know Martin Freeman's Bilbo and Gandalf. Yeah. Um, it was a nice, fantastic transition, and the the conversation was spot on what I imagined it in the book, and that's how the book starts. You know, for those who haven't read the book, yeah, that's how the book starts. Bilbo and Gandalf exchanging the whole "Good morning." What do you mean, "Good morning"? Do you mean it is a good morning? Are you wishing me a good morning? It's a fantastic, awkward conversation. Yeah, but it wouldn't have been as good an opening as that prologue. But yeah. it was great that they did yeah. still keep it in because it is a fantastic. It it, it sums up. Bilbo perfectly like you know he is just this very proper guy he observes courtesies like saying good morning he's quite happy to just sit down have his pipe and not have adventures because they make you late for dinner well they've got there's been said before they've got the opposite kind of job on their hands now in the uh, previous three films they had huge amount of dense text to cram in to a, sh- a relatively short space of time now it's the other way around there is almost every word in this book will or and every scenario will be replicated in some way because they've got bags of time now mm. which is great which i know one of the reasons why i'm happy they've got three films mm. it's almost like um What's the equivalent? The Harry Potters. Death, Deathly Hallows Part 1 and 2. The fact they did it in two films meant that 1 and 2 were much closer to the book yeah. than, than, the, than say, films 5 and 6, because films 5 and 6 were trying to cram 800 pages into two hours, whereas this was trying to cram 700 into an hour, you know, three, three and a half hours. Yeah, and I would imagine the Twilight films... The I close, know. I've never. The last two it. films will be closer to the books. I don't care, but it's it, giving them that extra time. So you're not not going to not going to argue the relative merits of it. Everyone knows. The, the point is that um, that has accounted for what a lot of people might consider pacing issues because they have now got large amounts of space to fill up in whatever way they see fit and what wetter like and what the general public like. It would appear are not on the same page. But who cares? 
Because <laughs> we got Gandalf the Grey back. His face in this particular scene looked a little bit funny, and I was worried about him. But then later on, it seems to sort itself out, and it's the inn that we've always known. So by the time he's at Rivendell, he's identical to how he was um, 11 years ago. Yeah, I yeah, think it probably put, could be that scene that they're doing that on purpose, because you're supposed to be looking at it from Bilbo's point of view, and mm. he just sees this crazy old man. Not um, a warm-faced, trustworthy no. magician. Yeah, no, Just a crazy old man with a hat. Now, obviously, we can talk about Martin Freeman, but I think first impressions of him I was actually surprised at how similar to Ian Holmes' performance he managed to do it I was expecting him to just come out and trot out Arthur Dent uh, yeah, and there was, there was actually quite a lot of uh, Arthur Dent and a bit of Tim in his performance but I had not accounted for the large amount of the classic Bilbo that we know creeping in there just mm. to tie it up and I was really impressed he was very good these he's still not quite the Bilbo I picture in the book. The Bilbo I picture from the book is slightly fatter, um, but a little bit more pompous, a little bit, and a little bit, a lot more homesick. Whereas, and maybe for, we'll get onto this later, but like maybe for pacing issues, they kind of, he, 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 he throws himself into the adventure a little bit more quickly. And like whines I said, like that, less. Crucially, he whines less. And that's what made him less Bilbo than I expected from the book. Yeah. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It was just a, a difference I noticed. Because ultimately we know it is made abundantly clear that he is not in his element anymore. As soon as he steps mm. out there, we don't need to be reminded of it every chapter. Yeah. As I say, reading the book is quite painful. Like, you know, once again, Bilbo was thinking of his hobby. Yes, we get it. He's homesick. Move on. Yeah. Where's the dragon? Uh, so the dwarves themselves, there's a lot to get through. So um, I've got notes here, and they really are, because there's so many of them and so little time in the actual film really to personify 13 dwarves plus Bilbo, Gandalf, and the supporting cast, there's only li- really a few um, words next to each one that I've got to really characterise them. So start off with Dwarlin, the Scots barbarian. A lot rougher than he was written. Mm. Nice. They yeah. all they all seemed a lot more kind of almost caricatures of who they're, of, of, of who they're written as. They're written as very similar dwarves, but they all have a very distinct character as you're about to go through. If they, you know, characterise them as they're in the book, then that would not worked whatsoever on screen. No, because they they did not have much characterisation except different colour hoods. That's as far as Tolkien got. <laughs> yeah, um, and Foreign was the the only one that characterisation, but. Well, they gave a little characterization. Yeah, characterization. Thank you. Yeah. Characterization to Barlin. Barlin got a little bit more personality in the in the book, but beyond that, they were just you know dwarf one, two, yeah. three, four. They might as well just numbered them. The problem yeah. is like you've got a massive a massive fellowship like this and a very similar, not as varied one. Like you know the the fellowship for the, the fellowship of the ring. You have a distinct Im- um, impression of each of them. You form your own opinion of each of them because you have ah you know the, even if you you know don't attach their names, you have the dwarf, the elf, yeah. the wizard. The four hobbits who we've come to know, the kingly man, the ranger man, you know, they, they kind of, they each have their own personality and you, you get a quick, swift opinion of what you think of each of them. Whereas these, even in the book and even in the film, because they're all quite similar, it's like, well, you're all dwarves. Yeah. Yeah. I think in retrospect, had Tolkien really thought about it, he'd have given us 
less dwarves, eight, yeah. maybe seven, mm-hmm. just so that he could then focus on what made each one different from the other. And because it's almost like he overwhelmed himself with 13 and went, Oh, I can't characterize these guys. Let's just call them the dwarves from now on. It does, you know, mm-hmm. no, he'd just have one of them ask an incidental question that any of them could have asked. Even with the really easily interchangeable names, you know, Dwalin, Balin, Keely, Feely, Dorin, Oriori, Yoing, Gloin, it's like, you know, Santa's reindeers. You can't actually pick out any of them. <laughs> Rudolph's the one with the red nose, but beyond that, no, they're all reindeers. At least you can tell who Dopey Bashful Doc. Actually, maybe not Doc, but. <laughs> I've always wondered why the hell that, um, Snow White guesses Doc straight away. It's like, how, how would. What, what does that even got, mean? Because he's got glasses. Therefore he's intelligent, therefore he's a doctor. I don't know. <laughs> That stands for doctor. Um, I don't anyway. know. She, she she doesn't know enough about dwarves. She and she lives in a castle. You must be grumpy. Give him no. the contract. Warren, please. We're off. It's just the usual summary of out-of-pocket expenses, time required, remuneration, funeral arrangements, so forth. Funeral arrangements. Oh. Up to but not exceeding one fourteenth of total profit, if any. Seems fair. Uh, present company shall not be liable for injuries inflicted by or sustained as a consequence thereof, including but not limited to lacerations. Evisceration? Incineration. Oh, I am out the flesh off your bones in the blink of an eye. <laughs> You're right, laddie. Huh? Yeah, I Feel a bit faint. Think furnace with wings. Yeah, I, I, I need air. Flash of light, searing pain, then poof! You're nothing more than a pile of ash. <laughs> nope. Yeah, they um, differentiate them uh, more, which I quite liked. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, they obviously have. Uh, Dwalin is the a massive berserker, and then you said they're obviously uh, Balin and Foreign of the main fighters with him, and uh, the rest they, they say are sort of tinkers and blacksmiths, yeah, because they're Fox in the book, it's more apparent. Most have seen too many winters, <laughs> too few. So I think obviously it would have been bad if they had all been fighters that can incredibly uh, stereotyped dwarves. Mm. But and also it hobby- doesn't explain how they get pwned so many times because especially yeah. in the book they get captured by <laughs> by uh, trolls, everyone, yeah, goblins, wood goblins, elves, spiders, wogs, men, wood elves, spiders, men. Uh, pretty much any species on Middle Earth, they've been captured by <laughs> without a fight in almost every case. They're basically yeah. walking through Middle Earth, a massive tour with a placard above their head saying, "Kidnap us now." Yeah. Yes, they made it much more believable that you know, not just forty or thirteen people go off with very few weapons, uh, but you know, if they've got a couple of fighters and at least have got much more of a chance. It was inaccurate that they didn't have sky blue hoods with little silver tassels on them, bells, and tiny daggers. <laughs> in the book they are written as these jolly kind of like Santa's helper at dwarves they are yeah. not written as real people with real implements of war or exploration yeah it's quite interesting that um, Tolkien started rewriting The Hobbit after he finished Lord of the Rings mm. uh, to, to re- sort, of, sort of marry up the tone make it a bit more believable and I, I assume the first thing he did was make is change the dwarves I hope he did anyway 
but unfortunately the publisher said no don't do that which seriously so we'll never get to see Tolkien's well I suppose this would be the equivalent it, it depends how many notes there are. Hopefully there are some, mm. at least like maybe the first couple of chapters. Hopefully. It's like, it's just crossed out sky blue hood. <laughs> okay. Sharon, are you there? I am indeed. Brilliant. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello. Good evening. Okay, so we're talking about dwarves. I think we've gotten as far as Dwalin. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm just going to hop, skip and jump through the list. Barlin uh, is the wise old warrior and scribe, given probably the second most amount of uh, screen time. And I think because he connects um, so strongly with Moria that we're going to see him characterised more later on. Also, his connection to Thorin. Keeley and Feely were somewhere between Orlando Bloom and Marion Pippin in terms mm. of that they were they were there for the girls to scream at for the second premiere because they're the new hotness I suppose, you know, that doesn't really talk particularly highly of their performance but they hardly got to say a word these were the first guys who were not your stereotypical dwarves they actually just looked like you know handsome young men um, just shorter I suppose kind of like Peter Dinklage Dory is the guy who was brown nosing up to uh, Gandalf and saying I've got your red wine sir <laughs> um, didn't get much to do besides that Nori I don't think he even said a word Jed Brophy the guy who played um uh, Snaga and Sharku in uh, The Two Towers uh, the punk from Braindead um, he apparently said that he would be a liable dwarf to steal the silverware characterization still very thin on the ground for this first film Ori, this was one of the only dwarves that actually straight out annoyed me because he reminded me yeah. of Rodney in Only Fools and Horses that irritated me because I didn't picture, like I said like, you know, in, in the book they're not characterised quite as much but I certainly didn't character you know picture any of them as incompetent not maybe incompetence too strong a word but he seems he seems the most unprepared for this journey he's a bit like pike in dad's army yes very much don't tell him pike he's kind of he's kind of there because he has to be whereas if you've put together this company of 14 people to take on a dragon you wouldn't take him not the film version of him anyway i'm hoping he will prove his worth later on because he is quite clever it would appear he's a scribe um but was, the, he a, a, the, was he the stereotypically effeminate yeah. dwarf? Yeah. Uh, he's the one with the, the catapult. He brings a catapult to a sword fight. Oh, that's... Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. He seems you know, massively out of his depth. I suppose it's more accurate that, you know, ultimately Thorin would... You know, he talks of loyalty, but he took what he could get at that point. Yeah. Really, you know, 13 men is better than 12. But uh, at this point, Ori has yet to prove himself and prove his worth. In fact, when he and um, poor Dory were hanging uh, off of Gandalf's staff at the very end, I was like, if they uh, fell to their deaths, would I be sad? Which is a terrible thing to say. <laughs> um, but at, th- at this point, they did not do enough in the film to make me you know, desperately hope that they would be able to climb back. Um, Oin is the one with the ear trumpet. <laughs> That's about it. One, uh, wonderful! Like, I'm, I'm glad that was underused because the ear trumpet is a, just an age-old comic thing. That's only because you watch old BBC comedies. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not the point. <laughs> the Germans. I, I did quite like though the point where he put a cloth in the ear trumpet and then put it up to his ear. Nice. That's yeah, nice. was that so that he could uh, avoid the um, elfish the elf music? music. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, as Gloin there is Gimli's father notable because he's holding Gimli's walking axe and has the same kind of rusty red beard again didn't really get to speak um, uh, Biffa 
Uh, as the uh, he, he seemed like he was Russian or something. He was he never actually got to say a word. He communicates in grunts and gurgles, and I believe he has part of a, a an orc axe in his head, which renders him unable to speak. Either way, he had a spear and has those sort of tufts of salt and pepper in his beard. Um, again, not much characterization. Uh, Bomber is fat and hilarious because of it, um, <laughs> and Boffer. Thankfully, saving the day uh, by uh, uh, Ireland's very own James Nesbitt. This um, kind of ruined, not ruined, this kind of diminished and improved the film for me. Yeah. Um, on the one hand, I love James Nesbitt. I've not seen him in enough. I've watched him in the fantastic TV series Jekyll yeah. uh, by Stephen Moffat, which is incredible viewing someone. You need to track that down and watch that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, less impressively so, the older... Uh, Yellow Pages adverts, but um, I, I just—he's one of those guys. Like as soon as he's on the screen, he's like, you know what? I'm going to enjoy this. But the problem is because I recognize—I I purposefully did not want to know anything about this film. My experience of this film before I went in was the two trailers. That was it. I didn't want to know anything about it. I didn't want to know anything about the extended storyline. No. I just wanted to know that the film was coming out. As we're waiting for the film to start, then when we was in the Empire, they're showing the, uh, the interviews with all the different people, and they interviewed James Nesbitt. I'm like, I didn't realise he was in this. And the trouble was, as soon as I knew it, he's James Nesbitt. This he may as well be Dwalin Barlin, Keely Feely, Dorin Ori, Orioin, Gloin, Biffa, Bomber, Thorin, and James Nesbitt. Hang on, did John <laughs> Rhys Davis from your favourite in Red of the Lost Ark ruin Fellowship of the Ring? No. No, because- no, no. No, specifically because it was James Nesbitt that I recognised as the only recognisable person that I knew from the dwarves. That's what took me out of it. Right, this is not a complaint, James. <laughs> this is not... I recognised that bloke, and it thus took me out of the uh, the film. Hey, no, it meant that I could never really get attached with it. I'm not I'm not complaining as such and saying this is a terrible, you, terrible... This is... You're mental! I was, a, <laughs> I was a little bit annoyed about the fact that I didn't notice... recognise more dwarves. I just yeah, I had no idea Balin was Ken Stott. <laughs> What's Ken Stott been in, by the way? Um, oh, I should know. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> I, if, did you have any more points about James, about the fact no, that I, Buffer, the best dwarf, ruined it for you? <laughs> it, did, it didn't ruin it. Like, like I said, like, it just, have you never had a film where you see all these characters, but because one of the actors you know... Mm from something else and you can never associate him with the character that he is meant to be mm. it's just oh it's such and such in this yes Daniel what? Day-Lewis in anything yeah there you go it's, it, whenever you're watching it's just it, Daniel Day-Lewis I was going to say not if in, they're a good actor because I mean like I, I find Tom Cruise quite difficult to get over the fact that it's Tom Cruise but yeah, that's because no, that's his, a very, his a very good example. Whenever, whenever I watch a Tom Cruise film it's Tom Cruise it's you know it's a it's, it's, uh, what's that collateral with Jamie you know with a taxi driver and Tom Cruise. Well, James I, Nesbitt, I think for you're some being reason. unreasonable, James, because you're expecting <laughs> no. every film to provide you with brand new actors that aren't. No, no, no. I, no and like I said, it, it's just, it was the shock of seeing him and recognising him that just made me think, oh, it's James Nesbitt, and I never quite attached to him as Boffer. I don't know why. Well, it's because you're crazy. It is that simple. I, <laughs> okay. Um, I'll sit I, in my I, corner. I can see that to an extent because <laughs> I do see him as James Nesbitt and Killy as uh, Mitchell from. Uh, Oh, what's it called? Werewolf thing. Werewolf like a, thing. You know, uh, BT3. Oh my god, being that's human. where I recognise yeah. him from. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, what? Oh, it's called, um, being being human. human. That's it, yeah. Being, yes. Being Q Man. <laughs> I need to read that comic. Being Q Man! <laughs> He's not the werewolf. He's not as good as Quick Fit, better. 
magic. It's like Thor, but with a less magic hammer. <laughs> okay, so, yeah. I, I reached that to an extent. Um, if they're... I, 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 if they've got enough of a change or they're a better actor, like Ian McKellen, I do not think of... In this film, I do not think of him anything other than Gandalf. He is Gandalf. What about when you see him in X-Men? Yeah, exactly. Then he's Magneto. Huh? Then he's not Gandalf yeah. anymore. Yeah, he's exactly, yeah. Because he's a better actor. <laughs> At the risk of angering you all, yep. Boromir will always be Sean Bean to me. Yes. Oh, yeah, I, I know that's the... Oh, yeah. you too. It's, it's Legolas, Gimli, Aragorn, and Sean Bean. <laughs> okay, or, so or, that was your equivalent for Fellowship. Okay. Yeah. But John Rhys-Davis being a better actor was able to get further well, than just being Salah. But he's, yes, and he's hidden by more beard. <sighs> so what you really needed for James Nesbitt was a bigger beard. beard. Yes, a yes. bigger beard would have hidden him. Graham McTavish, Goodness. for example, who plays Dwalin, the Scots barbarian, he is hidden by a massive beard and massive ponytails and so forth, and therefore I didn't recognise him as the vindictive screw from uh, the eighth series of Red Dwarf. Okay. I also did not recognise Foreign as well, Guy of Gibbs. Richard Armitage. sees Robin Hood. Oh, he yeah. is Guy of Gibbs. Yeah. I didn't know that until I looked on the IMDb. I thought, oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, he, he was in t- Spooks and Captain America. Who, oh, who's in Captain America? Oh, is he, he was the assassin that killed... Was he? Oh, was in, yeah, who ate the cyanide pill. Yeah. He was, yeah. Well remembered. Um, okay, we've got to talk about Thorin now. Uh, yep. When all of the lead-up to the film, I was looking at the, the sort of the, the dark, swarthy, tousled-looking, angry... Um, but dangerous looking man, possibly someone who people could be quite scared of and thought, right, well, they're positioning him as Aragorn then. He's this displaced king. Uh, and the second he opened his mouth and he, his intro was kind of Gondorian trumpet like, I went, nope, he's Boromir. I can't believe I didn't think of this before, but he is absolutely being positioned as Boromir here. And it's not a, a, a straightforward week. He is the analogue in this one. But they deliberately went out of their way to actually make you think of Boromir and um, Isildur as well in his uh, flashback with Azog the uh, Goblin. Mm. Yeah. So there's that. So you're already getting that streak of uh, weakness and, I suppose, humanity to the dwarf. Um so that that's sort of, you know, sowing the seeds for later. Uh, by far and away, no, not by far and away, because I really did love Bofa, but, um, yeah, my, my favourite dwarf and, and really very well characterised in this film. Yeah, he was very... I think having that, that flashback sequence where with the, the yeah. you know, on the gates of Moria completely sold his character. I mean, that, that was the sort of the perfect way to show who he is and... Well, you know, why Bar, you know, obviously had Bar in there as well, why he's following him specifically, mm. and that, that was a That's very good a idea. That's man I could follow, that was a yeah, good switch. Because um, so, otherwise, the rest of them don't really care about, you know, they, they don't seem to care about him much, except uh, the, the Misty Mountains scene, when he's singing, you do see in them, they're thinking, oh, this is a bit more serious than just, we want money. Yeah. Um, Actually, well, I'll, I'll talk about the whole we want money versus displaced people thing coming up. But, uh, yeah, the Misty Mountain song uh, was the standout moment for me in this. Although I'd already seen it in the trailer, uh, it was incredibly powerful. It still has the impact. Yeah. Because I was, I was worried, because I've had that song stuck in my head since that first trailer. Mm. So I was worried that it was not going to have um, the same impact. Likewise, the music that they go into after that in the trailer. Yeah. But it still works. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, more than just works. It's it's the um, 
what's the equivalent uh, in fellowship? It's almost the you shall not pass moment. I know it's, it's a lot less dramatic, but there's that sense of portent working with it at that point. I, I equate it more to the, the the very beginning of the prologue with Gadriel uh, yeah. speaking over it because it's, it's similar because it's you know words, but um, just that that sort of very short sequence of just sort of elongated it a bit more and. It's that shiver of music that tells you something's coming and it's going to be big. Yeah. Yeah. Appropriate for the trailer. And there's also the Blunt the Knives song, which actually, in fact, both this and um, the Misty Mountain song were re- that I could see the connection lines between the Rankin Bass versions and these. Yeah. I thought, well, I suppose, you know, you kind of got to work with the music that you've, um, the lyrics that you've got. But, um, and that wasn't bad that they actually had that sense of, there was a sort of certain slight heritage to them because there were bits in Fellowship, obviously, which were more than a little inspired by the Bakshi version, obviously. I think what that helps with, though, um, what I was talking about in the Lord of the Rings podcast is about the idea of creating a mythology by and having Alan Lee and um, and John Howe working on the the visual elements of it was a big part of this as well, I think by creating something that adds to what already exists about Lord of the Rings um, and about the you know the Middle Earth stories, it gives you a stronger feeling of it all being from the same mythological pool that everybody's drawing on the same source. Mm. And it links them all together in a way that kind of makes them seem bigger than the, the sum of their parts, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Ship the glasses, crank the brakes. That's what Bilbo Baggins hates. That's what Bilbo Baggins hates. So carefully, carefully with the plates. Blunt the knives and bend the forks. Smash the bottles, burn the corks. That's what Bilbo Baggins hates. So carefully, carefully with the plates. No. And, and can, can you not do that? You'll Ooh. blunt them. Ooh, do you hear that, lads? He says we'll blunt the knives. Blunt the knives, bend the forks, smash the bottles and burn the corks. Tip the glasses and crack the plates. That's what Bilbo Waggons hates. Cut the cloth, trail the fat, leave the bones on the bedroom mat, pour the milk on the pantry floor. Splash the wine on every door. Dump the crocs in a boiling bowl, pound them up with a thumping pole. And when you're finished, if they are whole, send them down the hall to roll. <laughs> That's what we're about to do. The world is not in your books and maps. It's up there. I can't just go running off into the blue. I am a Baggins of Bag End. You are also a Took. Did you know that your great-great-great-great-uncle Bullroarer Took was so large he could ride a real horse? Yes, well, he could. In the Battle of Green Fields, he charged the goblin ranks. He swung his club so hard, it knocked the goblin king's head clean off, and it sailed a hundred yards through the air and went down a rabbit hole. And thus the battle was won. And the game of golf invented at the same time. I do believe you made that up. Well, all good stories deserve embellishment. 
You'll have a tale or two to tell of your own when you come back. Can you promise that I will come back? No. And if you do, you will not be the same. Far o'er the misty mountains cold To dungeons deep and caverns old We must away and break on up in the morning after the Misty Mountain song and realises to himself that they're gone and he's free and he's out of this and his sense of panic that he was being forced into it is removed from him and then there's that wonderful moment when he goes I just missed an adventure and charges out the door it's brilliant this was my favourite moment of the entire film and not my, not my favourite part of the book like you know, it's just it's just a moment in the book. Like and, and in the book, it's it's different. Gandalf wakes him up. The g- dwarves have gone. Gandalf wakes him up and says, "The dwarves have left. You're late. Go and catch them up." And that's why he runs because he's late. Um, this like waking up, finding everyone's gone, and they. It's quite a lingering shot, but I think it gives you a real sense of this is how quiet the life of a hobbit is. Yeah. This is how empty the life of a hobbit is from a house from a house filled with laughter and merriment and the oh so well co- well choreographed washing up you now have a perfectly empty house that is devoid of life and is too peaceful 
and the prospect that you can have something more and choosing to go for it and that's an important step for his character it's fantastic the point where he runs out and it goes into this wonderful rendition of the Hobbit theme and it's on the soundtrack it's The Adventure Begins Mm running along to this really rousing version of the Hobbit theme that we all know and love from the uh, Lord of the Rings films the 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 kind of the pleasant melody that's meant that almost becomes associated with home hearing that played triumphantly as he runs through Hobbiton which we hadn't seen at this point at this point we've only seen Bag End to see Hobbiton that we know and have missed as he's running straight through and you see it from a you know large uh, above angle you see the, this home that he's choosing to leave to go on an adventure we combined with the music and the cry of I'm going on an adventure <laughs> such a rousing moment I honestly I, we all would love to shout I'm going on an adventure and actually mean it um, I did notice that actually that it seemed kind of like a Sunday morning in Hobbiton in terms of that it was a lot less populated it seemed like um, it, you know obviously at the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring there's a massive party happening and they're you know sort of they're all gathering for that isn't uh, every morning in, in Hobbiton like a Sunday morning? Yeah. <laughs> isn't that the point? So, but it seemed like m- m- more empty. But what you say yeah. about sort of leaving that behind and how quiet and, and, and still his life was, that actually really does play in with the idea that maybe Hobbiton, while it was lovely and warm and, and uh, uh, cosy and comforting, it is also kind of boring. It's lonely. He's, so, yeah. he's, he's got a taste of comfort there. He may not have, have approved of it, but by the end of the night, and certainly in the book, he's come to respect the dwarves and yeah. almost like them. And in, in the book, he kind of wants to prove himself prove himself to them. In the book, he actually agrees to go on the adventure the night before yeah. because he's like, well, these people think I'm just this boring stay-at-home person. I'm more than that. Yeah. And, he, and he agrees to sign up. So... Yeah, to wake up and find yourself alone. It reminded me very much when he walks into the uh, drawing room where Bill, old Bilbo writes his book yeah. and he's absolutely perfectly quiet. It reminded me of uh, my nana grandpa's house. My nana grandpa had a, fa- a farmer's cottage down in Somerset and we'd go down there for two weeks you know, in the summer and it was perfectly quiet. And if everyone went out and you were left alone in the house, it was too quiet. Yeah. And it was great for a holiday and it was great for reading and writing, but I couldn't have taken it every day. No one else it reminded me of? Forrest Gump. <laughs> There's a point when uh, he just gets up and leaves the house because he's totally alone and Jenny's gone and uh, I just got to keep, that's the when he just keeps on running. And there's that certain sense that when it becomes too quiet in your house, get out. The other thing that's important is that Frodo leaves Hobbiton because he's told he has to go, otherwise the entire world is doomed. So it has to be this wonderful, warm, uh, you know, comforting place that he, he he doesn't want to leave at all. And it has to be that he it's painful to leave. But with Bilbo, it's a decision. There's nothing really riding on it at this stage. Uh, only his desire to help the dwarves where there's they've got something to accomplish and he can help them with that. It's more than just for adventure. I think there's the the family connection thing as well because the, the, there is more of this made in the book than there is in the film, but the fact that he is a took and the fact that he has this um, genealogical streak of uh, unhobbit-like behaviour within him um, mm-hmm. and, and he almost it's almost like he remembers that part of himself, you know, that, that he was... I think Gandalf refers to the fact that he was quite an excitable young hobbit and um and he he just seems to have settled in his his middle years mm. um but 
he's alone as james said he's he's on his own in that hobbit hole and and most hobbits have got families not necessarily big families but the fact that later on he adopts frodo suggests that a, a big part of it is just that he wants to be around people yeah uh, Gandalf uh, says the uh, line, you know, your home is behind you, the world is ahead. And Sharon, you notice that they actually play the uh, at least a little quiet bit of the refrain from Pippin's song, They Return the King there. They do, yeah. It's very subtle, actually. They've changed it enough that you'd have to know it quite well to recognise it, I think. Oh, um, one thing that I noticed, and it, I only heard it when listening to headphones, it might not even be the case, but the first two notes before the Misty Mountain song starts up and the dwarves are just humming. Who's been listening on their iPod all week? <laughs> yeah, I don't Not this week, but I have. Okay, it goes... It leads into this new theme from the Fellowship theme, and it's so subtle I didn't catch it in the film. There are quite a few of that through the um, through the whole thing, really. Yeah, there's sort of stings of the old the old music, which is is needed, really, just to sort of. It's, I mean, talked about the visuals or getting you back into the to Middle Earth again, but the music is yeah. is one of the major points, and I think this film is littered with uh, sort of slight clips from the, the sort of music from the, the the Lord of the Rings films, just to sort of say, yes, we're back in Middle Earth now. Yeah. And then, and now we'd have, you know, music for the dwarves. I actually think that that will, in time, weaken this one soundtrack out of all six. I think that the next two, he's going to uh, create a lot more new themes because they're going to go to new places and they're going to, um, uh, meet new characters. This one actually was pretty sparse on brand new themes. Um, it was, and there was a little bit of copy pasting towards the end. With that, like, don't get me wrong, I love the Misty Mountains theme, and I love the the, the grander version of bam 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 bam. But they start playing that every single time the dwarves attack something. Yeah, and yeah. I worry. I I I love to share your optimism about the next couple of soundtracks, but I worry because as much as Howard Shaw writes, um, he writes themes for distinct places and people. Mm. There are fewer to explore in the rest of the Hobbit than there are in the Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, you had Gondor, Rohan. Isengard, the um, the Ents, uh, Mordor, Lothlorien, the Elves generally. Yeah, we've got Moria, Mirkwood, we've got Bayorn, we've got Lake Town, Dane, Smog. Yeah, Smaug. Sorry, Smaug. Sorry, Smaug. Uh, is that correct? I thought be, it was Smog. It's Smaug for an ounce. Smaug. Yeah. It's like Sauron. Um, ah, of course. Been calling him Smaug wrongly <laughs> for years. Yeah, of course. I would imagine there have been seeds sown in this first one that will become bigger themes later on, like how yes. they played the Gondor, the Gondor theme. theme during the Council yeah. of Elrond. The also, lo- one quick thing I'd say Chris on the wants music. To speak. Sorry, Chris. Hang on. Go I was on. about to say you've also got the necromancer and Dolgudur and yeah. true, all of that, and one all the other bits that he's going to add in that we don't know yet. So 
there's lots of things that he could that, that could yeah. be done. Basically, I'm only saying it, even though I adore it, because I called Hans Zimmer on it in The Dark Knight Rises, because yeah. he kind mm-hmm. of reorchestrated the Dark Knight theme and added a few new bits. This feels like that as well. It's wonderful to bring us back, but when we go back and listen to it, it will probably be the least yeah, varied of all three soundtracks. Yeah, all I think four. that's Sorry. unfortunately the problem of having a, a ten-year gap. There's yeah. not to... to Eleven. But, Technically nine since Shadow the King. I was averaging. (laughs) Sorry. Part of the joy of the soundtracks is going to be hearing the way the old themes are woven into it. So, you know, that that point where they, I know I'm skipping ahead slightly, but the point where they walk over the crest of the hill and you see Rivendell and you hear the elves theme just kind of rise up. Um, and there was a the Rivendell theme. The, the, there's a Lost yeah. Orient theme as well, which actually plays briefly just beforehand when they play the uh, when the elves save them. It goes. Nah. I muttered to Sharon, "That is no orc horn." <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah. then they play the the um, Lost Orient theme while the uh, yes. elves are kicking ass. There was there was one more that I that I loved here. Obviously, you know, the ring theme comes back later, but the one that I really loved hearing, and I didn't think I didn't even think that we would. Was there's a point where in Bilbo's home where they're talking about the the home that they've lost and the home they want to reclaim, mm. the the dwarven city theme that rises up when they enter Moria in Fellowship of the Ring and Gandalf lights his staff and you see the grandeur of dwarven architecture for the first time. That is actually woven into the conversation yeah. during Bilbo uh, at Bag End during the beginning of the film, and I loved that. This theme, listening uh, this this soundtrack, listen to it again, uh, sort of, or yeah, repeatedly. Uh, it does feel different to me, but I don't know if that's just because it's not the complete recordings. I think I've been slightly uh, spoiled. spoiled. Yeah, I, I I hope that Howard Shaw is doing the complete recordings for these because it would be a shame if if he's not. I don't know. I don't, when I came out, I could I could really only hum one new theme, and that was the Misty Mountains. Well, yeah, I, I for the complete recordings out. I like the sort of interspaced music yeah. a lot because I like how it flows from that music into background music and back up again yeah. um, so and and obviously you lose this as it's just points of the film there was only one point when I actually felt this actually is inappropriate music like they had 20 extra seconds to fill and they went um, let's put something dramatic in there and that's when Thorin confronts Azog at the very yeah, end that was played- unnecessary the, riv- the weathertop music from confronting the Witch King. I was like, hang on a second. Yeah. There's no ring wraiths around at all, and that actually I, I, doesn't really even work. It should be. I, Although, interestingly, I suppose Azog had previously. Uh, was that base actually riv- uh, weathertop? No, yeah. the when, place when he, where he's standing earlier, yeah, yeah. that was weathertop. Okay. So, they but it's still, that so maybe they were playing that for dramatic. Azog. It was, it was already quite a dramatic scene, and. They're gearing up there for a conflict, which ultimately didn't even happen. Yeah. That was a little over the top there. That felt like, again, that felt like kind of copy-pasting. Niggles, though. These are all niggles. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Minor niggles. And, okay, right. Let's move on to Radagast the Brown. Uh, okay. Um. Radagast the Brown. Okay, two things. One, he is actually really accurate to the small amount of description he got in the books. Two, that's a bad thing. (laughs) 
it's uh, I have not spoken to many people at all who didn't really dislike Radagast the Brown or accepted him up to the point where he ever sled pulled by bunnies. Three, I understand that Treebeard is a dull character and kind of a little bit pointless, uh, but it's kind of key to the two towers nonetheless and so they had to put him in there and they trimmed down a lot of his um, uh, footage just to just to get it done but Radagast the Brown isn't even in The Hobbit so they, they created time and space to put his character in to explain what was happening in Mirkwood so I don't get why they couldn't have made the character actually someone who fit with the world because he sticks out go <laughs> okay, I agree they've overplayed slightly overplayed the crazy old man but I didn't mind that because I think they were trying to get more of a contrast with Saruman and Gandalf. Well, they got especially, it. Especially Saruman, who up to this... I mean, there's not much difference between Saruman and Gandalf. Um, so I think they wanted someone who was at the other end of the spectrum. Also, it could, it can give Sauron, uh, Saruman even, uh, a way of disregarding what Radagast says without making him look evil. Yeah, he it does make do him look fervently anti-drug because he has well. had a go at Gandalf for smoking the halfling's pipe leaf <laughs> and now he's having a pop at Radagast for imbibing mushrooms. Yeah. Well, he is ultimate uh, right-wing power taken to its conclusion. Anyway, uh, so he's got bird shit on his face. <laughs> There's not one person who went, that was a oh, really good touch. I didn't even think of that. I just thought it was white plastery stuff. I didn't even think of it as shit. Yeah. Um, I I didn't I didn't mind it. I didn't thing. dislike this character. Cool, I, I think I, we I, need a ruling. <laughs> it was the bunny sled that really got me. I, I quite <laughs> yep. liked him, but not the bunny sled. That's pretty much it with me as well. <laughs> I can cope with the crazy old man. He's been living in the woods on his own, talking to animals for however long but the sled was ridiculous not well it's very hard with him having a small amount of screen time I don't know okay well we'll move on then Um, I want to see more of him in the next couple of films because I don't think I don't think he got enough he wasn't on long enough to to for me to really form an opinion as to whether I like or dislike him yeah I didn't dislike what I saw. I expected more. I grant you that I expected more. You know, finally seeing the, the fabled third wizard or third of five. Um, but I'm hoping he'll come back and actually have a larger role to play in the next couple. I'm trying to think of an analog character in Fellowship of the Ring that I actually um, was like, I don't know why he's in here, and then it turned out I ended up really liking him. Um, Gimli when he's burping is probably about no because no, he's the other way around Gimli actually starts off pretty um, serious and becomes silly later on it doesn't matter I mean I think I, when, originally when I saw it um, Boromir the character just annoyed me but the more and more I watch it the more I like Boromir as a character so otherwise he, he may grow on me there's enough growing on him but um, <laughs> if his sled had been pulled by elk or some other creature that has yeah, a slightly more noble bearing you cannot make it elk because then he would be uh, Father Christmas. No, he wouldn't. <laughs> he would. He would. He already looked a little bit. He's you know, cr- retro Santa. <laughs> well, okay. Well, I would rather he was Father Christmas than that. <laughs> also bothers me. Like I get that these are meant to be like super fast bunnies, but Mirkwood to wherever they are around, kind of the you know the Barrowdown sort of area, is a bloody long. What's 
the troll shore, sorry. Um, it's a bloody long way for, for bunnies to run that quickly. But he is wizard. <sighs> you and your magic, but he is a wizard. Brilliant. Can we get, can we get like a t-shirt that says that, but he is a wizard? But he's a wizard. A wizard did it, literally. I've uh, got, I'm, I'm a wizard, and that looks fucked up, t-shirt. <laughs> okay, right. Let's move on. The three trolls, uh, okay. Now, something I pointed out to Sharon the other day, uh, that I don't see why Thorin, when they had hold of Bilbo, uh, didn't say, just attack them and just get all of his uh, his dwarves to go in and try to fin- uh, finish off at least one or two of the trolls before they all went down. I don't see what the tactical advantage of giving all of your party up for the sake of a guy you've just met and don't or already don't think is particularly worthwhile to the team. I, I mean, it's, it's sweet, but I don't think that Thorin would have made that decision. Well, in the book, they just get jumped. So there's no decision to make. I think he's got very little faith in the uh, fighting abilities of his men. Ultimately, but but to give them all up to be eaten, I think I think he needs that's throwing he, in the towel. He feels like he needs a full crew. It's very much kind of the Ocean's Eleven. As soon as they've got one out, they have they they they're considering calling off the whole heist. I mean, it makes him seem like far better of a leader. I, I'll give you that absolutely. But I just tactically speaking. This is my, you know, bugbear of, of, of the kind that, uh, that you, you're like, oh my god, um, you know, James Nesbitt has thrown this entire thing <laughs> off me. You're not going to let that go, are you? Yeah, yeah I, I mean, he took not in the, the, all, the, all of the Fellowship of the Ring to kill one cave troll, yeah. and they've got a wizard. Yeah. Um, so there's partially that. It's just going, we can't kill these guys, may as yeah, well we, get eaten. Well, what's the master he plan? He may have yeah. been hoping that Bilbo would pull some burglar trick out of his sleeve. It, what... If you're facing down evil villains, you need to get captured so you can get away. Um, okay. <laughs> and also, um, there's a whole weird thing about having 13 people. They, they had it in the book. You can't, can't go with 13 because that's unlucky. So you have to have 14. So if they just get rid of Bilbo and just say, oh, we'll go then. Or at least try to, to, to fight. It's like we're, then we're going the rest of the way with 13. That Although it is tempting to ask where you go to unlucky from being captured by trolls. <laughs> we're still 14, we're still lucky. And they were, as it turned out. And uh, I did like the way that Gandalf broke the uh, rock to bring in the sun rather than actually yep. making the sun rise. I or... loved that. Yes, that, that was yeah, fantastic. fantastic. Because in the, in the trailer, you just see him slam the rock and then there's a flash and it usually comes up with the logo and you think, oh, it's going to be some massive spell thing. But the fact that it was just clever, just use of elements against the the, uh, the trolls, as yeah. it is in the book, brilliant. And also yeah, that they got the designs of the trolls to match the maquettes they used in Fellowship of the Ring. So for the extended edition, when Sam said, look, it's Bilbo's trolls, it's, it's yeah. them. And they even one of them is pointing in that same way. I don't think there was ever any question of that, though. I think that a lot of the plans of designing The Hobbit focused around using the materials that they had left over from Lord of the Rings. Yeah. As I said in the the prologue that we did, um, I didn't really like how they did it in the animated film, so I was very worried in the trailer. um, And I'm so happy that that what happened, happened. (laughs) It is a bit slapsticky, and it is a bit, hey, sneezing. (laughs) It actually reminded me a little bit of the... um, 
uh, first Harry Potter film. Oh, yes. Yeah, I could have done without that, to be honest. But, um, that, but then the, the, Hobbit, the Hobbit is meant to be a much more kind of comical story. I was I was worried by the second trailer where they showed lots of like battles and uh, I would take every dwarf over an entire army. I think, oh, please don't go the massive battle route because that's Lord of the Rings. This is a fun family adventure, very episodic in its structure. Mm. I didn't want them to go too big, too dark, too the world. You know, this, you know there's a lot at stake. It is I'm, a tough balance to keep, though, because if you go too kiddie, then you lose yeah. the adults. Absolutely, and it, and it would have been if it, if they'd have just played the book as straight as the you know as, as comical as the book is, you know, going straight from Lord of the Rings, it would have been a massive tone change yeah. for those coming back from the films having not read the book. But I'm glad they still kept in the lighter moments. There is also a, a massive get out clause for the entire film, which we can use in moderation which is Bilbo is retelling these events to Hobbit children. And so it has a slightly more fantastical edge. So, that, you know, things are a bit more colourful, things are a bit more um, bright and, and, and light and fun because it's being filtered for children through Bilbo, whereas Lord of the Rings is a historical account. I was thinking earlier on, isn't it effectively the same for the Lord of the Rings because it's him writing it in the book uh, but no it's Frodo and Frodo experienced a lot worse than Bill uh, did, true. Yeah, and yeah. he has been tainted by darkness also for the Lord of the Rings there's a lot more historical accounts that he's checked against yeah so they go to the troll horde and they find Glamdring Sting and Orchrist wonderful to finally see these guys and Orchrist uh, even though we only got to see it for a few shots is a wonderful cleaver of a sword and um, actually bigger than I thought it would be, especially being, when being wielded by a dwarf. It's massive. It's a chopper. I don't know where you guys stand on this, but someone at work um, was actually really upset that um, Gandalf gives Sting to Bilbo, mm. whereas in the book, Bilbo chooses a weapon. Gotcha. And it's, it's kind of a, it's a key point for him. He's picking a weapon. He's equipping himself for this adventure that he has chosen to go on, or you know, has found himself on, mm. and wants to be prepared for. Whereas this one, it's wizard like, well, maybe we should give the newcomer a weapon. Yeah, give the kid a weapon. Give um, the kid a weapon. I didn't bother me. No, it didn't bother me either. But there are some people out there who are bothered. And I, I did want like to the acknowledge fact them. I did, there are other people who are bothered that Orchrist isn't the exact match of Glamdring. <laughs> Don't care. Uh, anyone else notice that Sting does not have its uh, elven writing on it yet? It's also a lot bluer than it was in Fellowship. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that's just, um, you know, because they're, they're playing with the uh, re- sort of realism because you know, it's Bilbo telling old or something happens that it gets less blue. I don't know. I, it, I think it, it's probably it more the former. Okay, so Dol Guldor and the the appearance of the Witch King and the Necromancer. Three of my favourite additions all in one go for me. Yeah. Because it automatically starts tying it in with the resurgence of Voldemort. And, um, sorry, <laughs> just to see. Uh, no, uh, Sauron, he was the same character. This is all accurate to the notes that uh, Tolkien had made. And when he wrote The Hobbit originally, they do speak of the Necromancer. I believe he is passed off as just a wizard who can raise people from the dead in that book. So it's great to see Saruman later on saying, oh, he's, he's not, no, no concern of ours. But seeing the Witch King suddenly come out, I was like, whoa! 
And, and the, the way he's described as being, you know, buried in a vault so black light cannot enter, or something along those lines, is a great way of saying, oh yeah, so when he does come out, he's going to be the blackest thing imaginable. Yeah, I, I did like that scene, especially like the, the Witch King, because uh, that, that looked, I mean, it was incredibly good animation, because it looked exactly like the real people from the Fellowship of the Ring film. Yeah. So that is a plus. And yeah, just the looking down that, that archway and seeing the necromancer going, rawr, 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 <laughs> That's literally nice, what he said. Yeah, basically. That uh, is a good introduction. And here's the other thing that's really fascinating to me. Uh, the necromancer was played by Benedict Cumberbatch, who is voicing yeah, Smaug. Mm. So there is more than a little connection between Sauron and Smaug. And especially with Smaug's eye at the end, um, we, you won't have heard this one yet, guys, but we talked quite extensively about, uh, Anatar, the fair version of Sauron in elf form when he first came to the elves and said, let's make some magic rings so we can rule over Middle Earth. Benedict Cumberbatch is the kind of person who could play a fair, somewhat terrifying younger version of Sauron. So I'm fairly certain at some point they're going to do that. If I'm wrong, then I'm going to look like a fool. But if I'm right, people go, Alex called it! <laughs> He's a witch! I, I love I the whole dog or dog or scene, but for me, and it's a really, really... It's not a complaint. It's not a complaint. It's a... It is. It's not. It's. It was all a little bit too brief. Only in that, the, the part of the reason why I'm so looking forward to the, the... I've been so looking forward to this trilogy is to see that story. I've not read Tolkien to the the depth that um, that Chris has and, and you have. I've never really read the 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 story about the Necromancer and Dog Order. Part of the reason why I read um, The Hobbit again before the film was because I remember there being references to the ne- Necromancer and Dog Order and I thought, oh, I need to see those details so that I can pick out what's in the film and what's not. And then he barely gets mentioned. He's just mentioned in passing as something else that is going on in the world. I think, in fact, I think that then at the start of the book, Gandalf even says that he was recently captured by uh, the Necromancer and he escaped the dungeons of Dol Guldur, which they didn't do in the film. But I believe that's so, coming soon. Okay, that's uh, I fine. think I, that, uh, there's a there's a shot of him working his way around a castle that looks exactly yeah. like Dol yeah. Guldur in the exactly, trailer. But that's the thing. I'm really looking forward to seeing more of that. Mm. And there wasn't as much of that in the first film as I expected. I guess you know they're, they're trying to establish the the Hobbit story and the the you know the dwarves and what their quest is, and they're hinting at the the rest of it. But I really I'm really looking forward to seeing the rest of the Necromancer. And I was kind of gutted that there wasn't more of that. Speaking of stuff we thought that there was going to be that there wasn't, there's quite a lot of Legolas and Wood Elf-related stuff, merchandise released now. I don't Mm. know what they thought their first cut of the first film was going to be originally, because obviously there's a long lead time on merchandise. So I think one of their first planned cuts probably actually incorporated up to the point where the dwarves are all in barrels. Yeah, quite possibly. Well, they were originally going to do it as two, weren't they? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I mean that that sound that seems like a natural end for it. So yeah, my theory was that the version we're seeing uh, in, in for this first film, and I know already before you guys cut in, um, was the extended edition that they they added all of that extra footage they otherwise would have cut out and gave us the extended edition in theaters to thus pan out each film, so that what we're effectively getting is the middle film will be extra stuff from the end of film one and the beginning of film two. Maybe. Uh, 
However, that's not the case. Because in a year's time, extended edition is coming out with like 20 to 25 extra minutes to this first one. <laughs> and it's like almost, it's already like cut. So that to me suggests they had far more footage than they could possibly squeeze into two films, even extended. So I think that they were going to be angling for a third, no matter what. Yeah, I think well, Peter, I think Peter Jackson's ethos is we'll film all we can and then yeah. sort it out afterwards. <laughs> Um, I, I think they, well, they they always said this is a once in a lifetime opportunity regarding Lord of the Rings, but now they know this is literally the last thing they can do on, yeah, in this mythology. So we might as well get it done, so no other bugger can come in and do the Silmarillion badly. Yeah, quickly mentioning the extended edition, the the one scene I'm really looking forward to that they've announced is um, young Bilbo. Uh, there's a scene between Gandalf and even younger Bilbo, yeah, which was written by Ian McKellen and. Oh. Gives a bit more backstory because otherwise it's just I'm going to go up to this random hobbit and force him on an adventure. Yeah. <laughs> if there is a bit more background to actually how he knows, yeah. so he said he knew his knew his mother or grandmother, or whatever his grandmother. Belladonna Took mother. Yeah. Okay. Um. But would like to see more of that. <laughs> well, I just told you how it is in Tolkien. <laughs> I'm quite proud of that one. Okay, get me. So the Warg Scout scenes and the Elf Warriors. There's, there's not really massive amount to say about this. It actually reminded me of the Warg fight in um, uh, Two Towers. So it's a, it's a mountainside. There's lots of Wargs. Some mm. people like the new Wargs more. Some people like them less. Where um, do you stand? I, I don't really mind the difference between them. <laughs> I think these are these are they look like this. The ones in Lord of the Rings look like that. I, they're, they're different different parts of Middle Earth. They, they look or famous. it's being retold um, by Bilbo in a slightly oh, yeah. fashion yeah. Um, this actually reminds me of the Nazgul chase from Fellowship mm. mainly because I think it's the same place yeah it is, it is. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's actually supposed to be further in because they say they, they pass the ford of Bruin and, which they don't in but anyway but it's it, it's the analogue. There are actually, yeah. and, and I've been waiting to say this, there are many connection points between this and Fellowship. Many. Yeah. I mean, the, the, it, it's easier in terms of the fact that the way Tolkien wrote it, Fellowship retraces the footsteps of The Hobbit for the, the first leg of the journey. So uh, they they pretty much take you in the same directions to the same places. But they're all, they also hit the same... Um, not all of them, but many similar beats. They don't have Gandalf falling in Moria, and they don't have the death of Boromir, so it doesn't have those two vital bits of extremely sad drama, which possibly made people feel that it was less of an event of a film. I'm surprised they, they didn't include like at least a shot of them passing Bree, or the Buckleberry Ferry. Hmm. Just as a kind of a nod to the fellowship, I, I, I honestly thought they were going to do that. Maybe in the extended extended edition, we'll yeah. see that. Yeah, because that that would have been a good kind of landmark as to how far they'd got. Because throughout the early earlier section of this film, because in the fellowship, obviously, like by the halfway through the film, we've done everything from the Shire to Rivendell. Yeah, the bulk of this film is from the Shire to Rivendell, and yet the territory, you know, the, the, the part from this this wild scout chase. Did look very familiar, like like you know, like Chris says, as the um, as the, the troll the, the, shores are the place where Arwen met them. Yeah, so right. where the trolls got them. Okay, well, I, just, I, oh. I don't know. There were there were sections before 
before the troll shores it all looked a bit unfamiliar so i couldn't quite tell how far along the journey they were yeah. if we'd seen things like Bree and buckleberry ferry that would have been a greater kind of way to gauge I how think it went far they traveled route so it, it would actually have been inaccurate that's fair enough that. but uh but I think that if they had had the opportunity, they probably would have done. I'm surprised Tom Bombadil didn't get in there. <laughs> I was waiting for him to turn up. Isn't there rumours that they're going to bring him back into? Like, I thought he was in the 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 kind of the side storyline with Gandalf and Radagast and Dolgal. Like, isn't there rumours that he's going to be in the next two? Oh, films? oh I fucking hope not. <laughs> I, I swear I've heard that, that Tom Bombadil has been. I think they'll at least through. mention him. <laughs> I don't think I mean if people think Radagast Brown is bad I've no idea they, there is no way that they can do Tom Bombadil successfully and no, the way they depicted Radagast they won't be able to differentiate no. Tom from Radagast well, yeah. he'll be singing and he'll also be time. completely pussy whipped by Goldberry Jesus <laughs> I mean, that, oh, I've, I've just got past that bit and it was a struggle in uh, the book um, and he is like uh, he is fawning yeah. over Goldberry in this really creepy way also that she there, there is it's like he's grooming her there, well there's there's theories out there that she's a anthropomorphic personification of a willow yeah and he's grooming the anthropomorphic yeah. personification of a willow <laughs> either way he's a creepy creepy man and uh, I, I, the only reason I would put him in there is to shut up the whiners but they'll whine about something else so what's the point Okay, so Rivendell, the Hidden Valley. Uh, can I can I just mention the elves charging on horseback? You like their armor? Awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I am glad I got you get to see what sort of second age elf armor looks in the third age because I think that 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 was something I I sort of wanted to see from the Lord of the Rings films, but there was no way of putting it in because uh, there's nothing involving Rivendell fighting. But so I'm glad they put it in this and. From the looks I, of his action figure, Legolas appears to be wearing some uh, second age stuff. Possibly. I, I love the entrance of Elrond. It's mm. awesome. I really liked that too. I thought yeah. it worked very well. Yeah, I, I like it. It's like, oh yes, this is action Elrond. I think he, I think, uh. They said, where is Lord Elrond? And I think, well, I think he's kicking warg ass and taking yeah. names right now. Yeah. And then I he think, turned up. Yeah, it's Hugo Weaver. I keep forgetting his name for some reason. Uh, I think Hugo, Hugo even probably enjoyed that because he's like, in Lord of the Rings, he just stands over a book. Mm. Or looking disapprovingly. And he says, I disapprove on. of this. Yeah. He has to ride on like a hero yeah and be discourteous to dwarves yeah <laughs> so yeah we got the Rivendell scene they uh, clearly cut out that bit where uh, Bilbo looks at the sword that was broken either that or he looks at it on the way back um, but uh, yeah that was in the uh, trailer yeah I didn't mind that they cut that I mean like I liked seeing it in the trailer but it, it, since it doesn't get mentioned in the book it's not it's not essential that Bilbo see the sword. Of course not. Because, this, because the sword's completely unrelated to this. He wouldn't day. even know what it meant. Yeah, exactly. Mm, uh, but so we do, just, and I like it. I, yeah, uh, I, I think that will be in extended edition, because yeah. uh, that's what it's for. Yeah. Well, either way, it wasn't. It didn't feel like it was missing. No. Um, only because I'd seen it. But basically, um, had it not been in the trailer, I would have thought to myself, wow, I, I, I guess uh, Narsil's around here somewhere. But, uh, yeah, didn't miss it. Quick thing. Um, Lindir. Uh, anyone recognise Lindir? Yeah, yeah, that's Brett from Flight of the Concords. Yes. Yeah, I had to look at that all for the film, I think. I know him. And he's also in, in Two Towers. Return of the King. Return he's the, the King, one who yeah, says, that. Lady Arwen. Yeah. We cannot delay after I've yeah. just seen her, um, yeah. yet to be born son. I knew I recognised him there. And I, 
it was even more apparent this. I thought, who is that? Who is that? I know. And then I looked at my own DB and it's like, oh. <laughs> His name in Return of the King was, uh, was unofficially, because he was never actually named, I think he was just called Elf, uh, was yeah. Figwit. And he has now been officially <laughs> named. That stands for Frodo is God, who is that? That's a fan name. Um, but uh, he has now officially been named as Lindir, who actually was a character in Lord of the Rings. And he was listening to Bilbo singing or Frodo singing or something like that. And said, play another. So, yeah. Even though he wasn't in The Hobbit. But either way, he is now a main character, and Brett McKenzie's thrilled about that. We also get introduced to Azog the Goblin here. Uh, the equivalent, I suppose, of Lurtz, or Gothmog, if you will, a, 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 an orc chieftain. Only this time they're using performance capture for him rather than just prosthetics. And this thing took me by surprise, because he's mentioned, I think, once in the, uh, the Hobbit book, and is not a uh, major character in it. You never really meet him. Um, but uh, the backstory regarding the fight on the gates of Moria is accurate and making him into a major character in this and a stalking presence was a brilliant idea because he's terrifying <laughs> see I, I looked this up is this not like it, it's accurate but they've changed it slightly to make it more to connect it to, to, to forge a stronger connection to this story the king that he actually kills is Dane rather than Thor, uh, Thorin's father, so it's a different, it's a different dwarven king that he kills. But mm. I do, I do approve of this. is This is one that, like I say, it's, it's a change that surprises you, an addition that surprises you. I knew there was going to be doing like the Dol Guldur ne- necromancer stuff, but I didn't see this coming. And this gives a great kind of sense of tension that they are being hunted from the word um, go. Mm. Uh, and major minor uh, pedant point. It's uh, Lord of Things where he said he killed Thor. I did say that, didn't I? I've I've read read somewhere that he kills Dane. Why have I read this? Uh, Let me compare nerd files. He was... (laughs) On a side note, while you guys are doing your research... He was killed by Dane in uh, the following years, it says. Oh, Azog was killed by Dane. That yeah. makes more sense. Okay. Apologies. I should have known better than even That's to fine. dare correcting Chris on Tolkien. <laughs> um, I will say, is, is uh, Thorin's father Thrain? Uh, and, yeah. and grandfather is Thrall. Right, Thrain, they never mention what happens to him in this first film. As far as I can remember from the book, he Gandalf meets him in the dungeons of Dol Guldur, and he's gone insane. Yeah. I suspect... Then that's going to be a reveal later on because it's brilliant characterization for Thorin. Ah, uh, yeah. Haven't they, they mixed up the order then? Because that's where he because he's got the key, isn't he? he? Yeah, he gets the key yeah. from Thrain. He may be either withholding that information or um, he meets Thrain later on. But okay. that's what I suspect will happen. And like I said, that would, the that fact that they haven't brilliant. even mentioned it that is a huge thing for Thorin. That will be fantastic. Yeah, I can see that being another flashback. Yeah, um, he, he's just been. Uh, he's all. Uh, the, I think the idea was that he actually set out to try to find Erebor and to try to get there, and um, and failed and was captured and tortured into madness by uh, the the, you know, the forces of darkness. And uh, so, yeah, that's going to give Thorin redoubled uh, effort to actually get this one won. So, yeah, I can't wait for that. That's the kind of drama I love. I mean, it's yeah, tragic, I, but um, it, it's powerful stuff. I, I assumed they'd put that in, in this film. I, I assumed we'd have a, you know, a flashback once he gave the ring to, uh, the, the key to yeah. Thorin. 
you know, it's like, this is where I found it. But. Um, then there's the White Council. And this, this didn't really take me by surprise. But I had been on total media blackout, and I had to, I just don't want to know anything. I know Saruman is in this somewhere, and he was actually recorded at Pinewood on green screen, and very cleverly they wove him in with uh, with everyone. See, I I didn't know this was coming at all. I had wondered if Saruman was going to be in, but by the time we got to the film, I honestly thought no, he can't be because it was about three four years ago he won like the the lifetime achievement at BAFTA. Yeah. And he came out, and he's this frail, old, skeletal man. Yeah. And I thought, bless you. He's like ninety you now. Yeah, you you have not got long left in you. Mm. That he could, he was hobbling up to the pulpit. He could barely, and, and it's such a shame seeing such a legend like that, you know, ravaged by the time. To see him as he walked in, as you heard his voice and he walked in, you can quite clearly tell there's a lot of makeup and stuff. And he he, he clearly he's standing and then he's sitting. He doesn't do anything active, mm. and that's to account for his age. But it was so good to see him back in the film and the Saruman that should have been, you know, the Saruman the White, Saruman the Wise, brilliant, Saruman the Stubborn, Saruman the Stubborn. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah I, I knew that. No, this is about Christopher Lee. Hold on, <laughs> I've got to stick get my bit in first. <laughs> Conversely, uh, watching bits on YouTube the other week, I saw a bit from She, the old Hammer Horror, uh, and that had, uh, you know, various um, swashbuckling punch-ups in it. It's got Ursula Andrews, she's rubbish. And uh, then I, I recognised the young, angry man fighting, and it was Christopher Lee. I thought, wow, he was quite buff in his day. <laughs> so it's, it's wonderful that he's got such an enormous back catalogue that so even when we are finally parted from him, he's done so much more than any actor could ever dream of. Chris, yeah. uh, I was just going to say that he, I knew that he couldn't go out to, to New Zealand to film that for obvious reasons. Mm. Um, so I, I assumed when I was watching it that um, so had everyone else. They'd filmed it together in a, you know in in England. Mm. Well, they might but, have done. Well, I, I don't know if you're, I don't know, they might, I, I was just, I'd say if they have just, if they just did just paste him in, it was incredibly well done. Yeah. Because it yeah. looks like he's there, so obviously I have to find out from the uh, behind the scenes stuff what they actually did. But. Well, usually they don't have to do that kind of um, effects for just a sit down meeting scene because yeah. usually you can get your actors all together in one room, it's not too much trouble, but in this one case, um, because of distance and, and, and circumstance, having to do that, that they were, it was, if that was effects, then it was masterfully done, as you say. Yeah. Um, but Galadriel's reveal, I think I, I gasped. I yeah. knew, I mean, I, you, we knew she was in this film, she was in the trailer, but just the sudden turnaround and the music and the dress and they're like, <gasps> okay, Galadriel is now in the room. Making up for all that complete lack of estrogen elsewhere. Sharon, you want us? It's, I don't think it's so much the estrogen. It's difficult to explain, but there's a certain. Put this well. It's it's like I said before when we were talking about the, um, the the Lord of the Rings films. If you create an environment in which the women are entirely lacking, mm. it doesn't look real. It looks like a story. It looks like a boy's own adventure. Mm. Um, the moment she turns up, and I said this about um, the, this idea that this story is being retold by Bilbo, mm. um, that there are several parts of the film that seem 
like a child's tale. Like they're being, uh, they're be- it's being told in a way where the the danger is dialed down and the humour is ramped up, and it's it's done in such a way as to, to you know to to get the story across um, and and make it more fictional. Um, and I like the way they've done that. It makes it feel like more of a a kids' film. Mm. But when Galadriel comes in, that moment, that whole scene with the the four of them talking about what's going on and what's happening, it's like this is the real stuff. This is the stuff that Bilbo wasn't necessarily party to. This is what was going on behind the scenes. Um, and this is the... I, they do something as well. I don't know whether it's with the lighting or it's it's simply the fact that this is by moonlight and that's just coincidence. But there are certain sections of the film that just seem that little bit more real. This and the scene with Gollum that we'll obviously talk about later. Mm. Which just, Bilbo was most definitely party to. Which he was party to, yes. But I think um, it's kind of hinted at several times through Lord of the Rings that Bilbo's version of those events may not be entirely accurate. So this is the accurate version. So I, th- I think, yes, I think they've tried to portray it as this is what actually happened. Bilbo might have polished it a little bit to make himself seem less scared and more bold. Um, and again, this idea of the ring making people want to retell their claiming of it to make it seem like they have more right to it. Mm. Um but I think it gives those scenes that they've peppered this film with just a little bit more gravitas, just something that makes it seem like if you were to filter out the fictionalised versions of this, these are the real bits. These are the bits that you could take out and put them in Lord of the Rings and they would still fit. Mm. Yeah, that's that's why I'm glad that they did, you know, extend the, the story and add these bits things. If it was all of... Yeah, if it was just the... Verbatim. Yeah, if it's just The Hobbit where it's all... It's going to be, you know, well, it'd be one film. Well, it'd be one film, and it be, and if it's all more, um, it's going to be more jolly, for want of a better word, because it's the tone of the book of mm-hmm. the book. Um, it'd be one film. If basically all these whiners going, hey, you should do it one, not three. It'd be one film. They wouldn't like it. Yeah, I, yeah. Simple I as that. It wouldn't have been, you know, near enough to Lord of the Rings to be in the same to, as. Sharon said before, the, is sort of to feel in the same universe. It'd be a so, fluffy adventure. Yeah, they're going on the, the this this weird scale that implies that once an incredible achievement has been made, you must surpass that achievement each and every time, and that if you don't, you are failing. This is the start of a story that Lord of the Rings continues, and I think once the three films are out, quite unlike the uh, the Star Wars original trilogy and prequel films which never been need to be seen which well I think if you're going to see them all the order needs to be very chopped and changed and that's something that we've talked about before mm. um, but I think with this but you don't have people to see who people who come to this world in the future will be able to sit down with the Hobbit one two three and then the Lord of the Rings one two three and that will make a coherent whole and, you know and it will fit I envy those people I really do because mm. to go from this all the way up to Return of the King would be incredible. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. I did and actually uh, all... figure, uh, think of maybe holding off on showing Lyra anything until um, the last Hobbit film was out, so she'd be the perfect age to watch them all, one, two, three, four, five, six. However, we had to watch a lot of Lord of the Rings in the past few months. So my my children, as soon. and when I have children, will watch it in the Hobbit, then Lord of the Rings order. That's going to happen now. And I, I think the other thing is as well, there are moments through the Hobbit that I noticed that if you've already seen the Lord of the Rings, there is a certain poignancy to them. Mm. Um, and again, we'll, the one I'm thinking of particularly we'll talk about later. Um, but I don't think that you will necessarily lose that. It's just that when you come back to see them again later, then you will get a different slant mm. on it. Yeah, I, I do like, I think it was in this scene there was a line that uh, Galadriel says to uh, Gandalf, which I quite like, he's like, I'm basically, I'm here if you need me, which sets oh, up sets up for him dying and then he goes to Lothlorien and says, I need new clothes, mm. uh, which he get and a new staff, which he gets from, from Galadriel. Yeah. Ian McKellen that, actually seemed like a young man at that point. He did, yeah, yeah that moment, she just, it made uh, Galadriel seem like this ageless goddess and him like this this very capable but very young man who was in a situation that he didn't quite know how to handle and just turning that around given their actual chronological ages just mm. was amazing and so good. They did have to go back several times to why does Gandalf want Thorin to succeed here? Why is he so keen to get this dragon ousted and killed from Erebor? And they they kept saying, well, it's something to do with the necromancer. But it almost seemed like there were threads of fate that were kind of forcing him to go through that. Because he is ultimately under orders from uh, the Valar to actually to get certain things done on Middle-earth. And this appears to be one of them. Yeah, because there's a, a line in the, the moon runes, isn't there, that said that you basically come exactly the right day for this to work. Hmm. So it must be What fated. a narrative <laughs> contrivance. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Is it during this bit where they particularly question why Bilbo, or was that at Rivendell? I think it was around that time, because uh, they, um, that's when Gandalf actually gets quite stroppy and says, No, it yeah. must be him! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, that's what made me think this it seems like Bilbo is fated to be... Bilbo was meant to find the ring. And that's why I, I feel that, 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 that having a, a sort of a... a earlier scene of him and young even younger Bilbo would be mm. play into that even more so yeah. I really want to see that um, also uh, the uh, the moon runes bit is the only time when um, Richard Armitage as Thorin actually looks really short because he's next to Elrond <laughs> and he's like oh yeah, suddenly I... your kingly bearing has disappeared <laughs> yeah that, that scene when they go down to the, the special plinth is Fantastically shot. Mm. Just having the the water coming through the 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 uh, light coming through the waterfall, it makes it look completely otherworldly. And it's but but having the sort of the archway, it looks like oh that's just downstairs from Rivendell. They've, they've sort of tied it in mm. very well. The last time I needed a uh, Blu-ray, although at the time it was a DVD, this badly, it was Return of the King. <laughs> need to watch this film again and again and again. I yeah. can't afford to go see it in the cinema the amount of times I need to see it. Okay, um, Overhill, which uh, brings back the rousing fellowship um, 
analog uh, Misty Mountains theme. Wonderful moment. Um, and the equivalent of the uh, going towards the Pass of Cahadras, you know, seeing the entire fellowship. Uh, and then there's the thunder battle. This is the time I ran out to the toilet and it really bugged you, Chris. So, yeah. Why? It starts off quite well. Cause, I mean, the, the hot reading the book, I read the whole thing as a metaphor. You know, storm giants. It was as though giants were throwing rocks yeah. at each other, not actually, um, that they so, actually were. But then actually they have, yeah, these massive rock beasts come out and start throwing rocks. Throwing rocks is fine. That, that is a, a, a you know, is a, a device to say, oh, rocks are flying around. But then they start beating each other up and it just looked so awful. As I said, it sounds like Rock'em Sock'em Robots. It kind of looked like that, yeah. Oh, God. There was three of them fighting at the same time. It's like, why don't they... So this was your Tom... uh, Not Tom Bombadil, Radagast moment. Yeah, I mean, yeah. James? You haven't been Also the fact that they're on the giants. Like, in in uh, in the book, they are in the valley above the giants, and the rocks are flying near them, but they're not actually involved in the battle. And there, they're standing on the bloody thing's legs, and it was all just a little bit too over the top. Mm. This was the one bit that felt to me like that's one action scene too many, and you only put that in to have another action scene. Yeah. Then they go under the hill. The significant thing here is when Bilbo talks to Bofa, the fantastic dwarf, not the least bit spoiled by <laughs> it being uh, James Nesbitt. Um, I stand by this. There's such a sense of crumpled honesty about Bofa, and he's like, okay, you should probably go home. Um, and that, not even like resentful, just in a kind of, I understand. Uh, but he's not guilt-tripping him, he's just... He's empathising with the with Bilbo. Like you know, yeah, so far, they've all been so focused. They've been so focused on what they want to accomplish and what they need to do. Yeah. And this burger needs to come along to do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And this is the point where both is like, well, actually, we've pulled, we've taken this guy away from his home. We've put him in danger that he never ex- expected, and he's not equipped for. Mm-hmm. If you know, maybe it is it is the point for him to go home. Certainly because. From kind of here on onwards, like you know, the, the the Misty Mountains is the edge of what they refer to as Wilderland. Beyond the Misty Mountains is lands and uh, of, of untold dangers that they don't know, and they don't know. They knew how to get to the Misty Mountains, but beyond that, they do not know the way. This is almost the point of no return. And maybe Boffer's thinking, you know what? Better that you go home now while you have a chance, because beyond here, you will not be able to leave. And you know, we've got enough to do without having you on our conscience. Yeah, I don't think it's quite as selfish as that, but it is kind of you know what you know. I feel sorry for you. You have been completely taken out of your comfort zone. We're doing this because we have to. Mm. You're doing this because we've told you. Yeah, which was the best thing he could possibly have done because it uh, makes it clear to Bilbo and to us the displacement of the dwarves and the the people without a home in the book. You never really get that no there, there's there's almost that that sort of well this is our place and this is our gold and you kind of it doesn't really sum up Erebor as being anything other than a place where treasure was hoarded and created it didn't really feel like a place you'd want to live but the way it's shown and the way they just seeing them walking across that marshland that all of these dwarven people and just that's it they're mm. out there now they're you know, having to do, like um, Thorin having to just work odd jobs and he's the king 
That's uh, another reason why I love the prologue because, you, like, yes. you, like you say, you do not get the sense in this book. In the book, it honestly feels like, well, these are dwarves that live somewhere else mm. you know, with other dwarfy people. They've got another home. That's they fine. just they just happen. They'd rather go back to this place where there's yeah. a crap load of treasure, and it feels like a treasure hunt. Whereas this is like this, this. The film makes it much more personal. It's like, no, we need to retake our home. Yeah, and they must, you know, they must not have that good a cause because otherwise more would have come. But in this case, it's all, it's almost like it's it's a crazy, foolish idea to try and get this um, mountain back from a dragon. It's suicide. And then, yeah, they, they fall into the uh, goblin trap. There's a second of two um, slides down into a cave. They managed to make it not quite like the Goonies, which is a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> everybody thinking of Sean Astin again. Yeah. And, and then we get a lot of CGI goblins. And this has kind of been divisive for a lot of people because uh, some people were like, I can't believe they went with CGI. They don't look real. Some people were, were saying, actually... Good CGI and good prosthetics are about equal. You know, ultimately, if, if they're done well, then it doesn't really matter which they use. And ultimately, they're pushing the envelope on performance capture, which I can empathise with. But for me, I miss the skittering menace of the prosthetics on the Moria orcs, the goblins. Yeah. Yeah. But These guys I, I seem like they could cut you to ribbons. The Goblin King in particular... Chinball boy. <laughs> he just it looks it looks out of place. He looks he looks like the weird bastard child of the Chinball guy from Men in Black Two mm. and Dexter Jexter from Episode Two Attack of the Clones. Yeah, there is a different tone between the, the goblins, which is accentuated by sort of CGI. Cause in Fellowship, they're scared. You know, they're living in fear all the time of the Balrog. Yeah, um, and in in this one, they are. They've got no enemies. They just eat stuff that is on their doorstep. And yeah. So. They're also a lot more feral. You get the sense that they scavenge in Moria because there's nothing alive yeah. there. They have to scavenge for food. Whereas here, this is the this is their civilization. This is where goblins live. They have a society so, there. It's yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, so but when they took him towards the Goblin King, I was like, that is not David Bowie. Which <laughs> 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 is a good thing. No, it's Seriously. It's Dame Edna. <laughs> If it, it had is. been Jareth, I would have cheered. Um, but, is but, but it is indeed Dave Edna. And uh, <laughs> also for, for Pixar fans, he was Bruce the Shark in Finding Nemo. That's who I most recognise him. Like, the next day I was talking to him... Uh, What's a couple of boys like you doing here? <laughs> it's been three weeks since my last fish. Stay away from those balloons. You wouldn't want them to pop... Yeah. It's got this incredibly throaty kind of uh, Australian voice because he, he but he's putting on an English accent. Like I'm listening to him, and it's like I know your voice, mm. I know your voice, and I cannot work out who you are. And yeah. someone, a friend of mine, said, "Oh, I knew it was Dame Edna." But it's like, no, I don't hear any. I, you know, I expected her to say "pop it." I honestly didn't hear Dame Edna. I heard Bruce as soon as I knew it was Barry Humphreys. I heard Bruce. 
I had the same issue with uh, Goblet. I actually didn't mind the chin balls so much because he was quite threatening, but um, his voice didn't sound like it was coming from a creature of that size. If you think no, about no. how big the cave troll was, uh, there was this incredible base and depth to it. Like, he was this giant walrus creature. But the Goblin King, he's got more personality to him, but he should also sound like he's that big. And that seemed like... I have a problem with Aslan in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah. You know, he comes out and he's like, Ah, Peter Pevensey, Lucy. And he's just talking like an Irish bloke. And it's like, well, hell, he's a lion! He should have an enormous voice! It makes him less threatening as well. Yeah. Yeah, the the, the bit where he really... It's like, you know what, you were never a threat. The point where, um, not to skip ahead a bit, but... um, Gandalf cuts him down with calandering. Mm. And he's like, oh, you can't stop me. He cuts him down. That'll do it. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. it's like, but also, yeah. you can't even use the Bilbo was describing this thing because ultimately he would have had... Yeah, he wasn't there. He wasn't party to it. He would have. I suppose he would have had it described to him by other dwarves and maybe just sort of maybe put they're a spin on it. But ultimately, that's not enough of a reason to have this character not be actually threatening. Ultimately, when you've got Azog running around the place being terrifying, it seems kind of out of place. I guess that's the danger, though. Like, if they'd have had Azog and uh, you've got the, 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 the distant threat of the Necromancer and this horrible great godrim, goblin, and we've just had the Stone Giants, it's all too many villains. Well, I don't know, because you managed to get yeah. the Witch King and Gothmog and Sauron. Shelob. Shelob, all into Return of the King. And Gollum. Yeah, fair point. I think they probably based it on. Oh, the and the King of the Dead. <laughs> Probably based it on the book too much. Obviously, this is the point where they do the ho ho, my lads, which ho, does ho, not ho, make my lads. not make the goblins in any way scary. Yeah, now this so is actually I'd, pretty close in tone to the book. Yeah, I'd, I'd um, been I'd been listening to your prologue episode on the way to the premiere. Mm. I didn't get all the way through the episode. I still haven't. Um, but I heard the ho ho, my lads, and it got stuck in my head. So as this bit came in, don't, all I can hear in my head down. is ho ho, my lads, because <laughs> he's, he's singing down down to Goblin Town. I'm honestly waiting for Bruce the Shark to go ho ho, my lads, <laughs> ho ho, my lads, ho ho, my lads. That would have been all right. <laughs> I don't know. It wouldn't have been any less silly than the actual thing was. It did. Now that I say it wasn't like the Goonies, it did seem kind of like a sort of an underground, one-eyed willy pirate captain, you know, Ewok hangout. I don't know. <laughs> it, it was during this whole section I started being really aware of little nods back to Fellowship in particular. Mm-hmm. Lots of running across bridges and yeah. things falling over and sliding over other objects. It was all very like the, I, was the this stairs. Was this when I said to you, Sharon, to the bridge of Cathedoom? Yeah. Uh, I believe it was, yes. <laughs> it will have been. Um, Carry on, Paul. I don't want to talk over you. No, that was pretty much what I was getting at. It, there was that. There, there was a... Um, I can't remember what the stairs are called, but <laughs> where they throw... Um, the fellowship run down the stairs yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in this you've got yeah. the the platform they're on collapsing and sliding over Aww. rocks and all that sort of thing I didn't like that bit it was <laughs> it was a lot more choreographed than Moria Moria was a frantic desperate slasher anything that moves that's not the fellowship people trying to get out of them Moria whereas this was a lot of spinning on the spot elaborate arm movements dropping down um, ladders and pushing people out the way and a lot of kind of 
set pieces, almost like Home Alone on the Run, as it yeah. were. Got a lot of dwarves to move as well, and Bo- Bomber is not exactly mobile. <laughs> He's not fleet on his fe- mm-hmm. uh, fleet on his feet, is he? Nah. Despite that scene, I well, I, I don't think that bad overall, but um, the Gandalf reveal was was excellent. Yeah, just, he yeah, was like yeah. a cowboy hero at that point. Yeah, he just comes in, whoosh, everyone's fallen over. <laughs> Far to the east, over ranges and rivers, lies a single solitary peak. The dwarves are determined to reclaim their homeland. I like visitors as much as the next hobbit. But I do like to know them before they come. Visiting. Mr. Baggins? At your service. Hmm? <laughs> I'm surrounded by dwarves. What are they doing here? Oh, they're quite a merry gathering. <laughs> so, this is the hobbit. You asked me to find the 14th member of this company, and I have chosen Mr. Baggins. Me? No, 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 no. Hobbits can pass unseen by most if they choose, which gives us a distinct advantage. We'll seize this chance to take back Erebor. Here, Mr. Bilbo, where are you off to? I'm going on an adventure. Mithrandir, why the halfling? Why Bilbo Baggins? Perhaps it is because I'm afraid. It gives me courage. So this is your purpose? To enter the mountain. What of it? There are some who would not deem it wise. A dark part has found a way back into the world. Why don't we have a game of riddles? And if it loses, what then? If it loses, precious, then we eat it. If Baggins loses, we eat it whole. Fair enough. I will take each and every one of these dwarves over the mightiest army. Loyalty. Honor. A willing heart. I can ask no more than that. Home is now behind you. The world is ahead. Riddles in the Dark. And this is a tricky one because ultimately this is Gollum's big reveal. Uh, if, you, if this is the first film you've ever seen of the, uh, the, the, the saga, suddenly Gollum turns up and you don't know who he is or what he is as a child. I think they just sort of took for granted that everyone would. Um, it's not a weakness at all because that's pretty much how it is in the book. On an island in the middle of the underground lake lived a creature named Gollum. And then it, you see exactly what he does. It's actually quite vicious. He takes this living, you know, still living goblin back to his island, beats him with a rock until he dies, and you know the moment he's dead because the sting stops glowing. Mm. Yeah. It's gruesome, and at the same time, brilliant way of making him far more threatening. Yeah, it was a very, a very good introduction to uh, to Gollum, and I, but I was actually surprised to see how much it was different from the prologue uh, in Fellowship. I had assumed they would copy some bits mm-hmm. uh, like I how thought, the, yeah, the yeah. way the ring would fell down and, and the way Bilbo picked, Bilbo up, and picked, picked up, it in, up yeah, in a different way this time, simple but. things like the lack of ooh, 
a ring. A ring. What's like, this? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that that line. I honestly expected. I mean, I like, yeah, I was the same as you. I expected right. them to kind of almost shot for shot recreate the the brief scenes from the prologue. Didn't bother me. No, no, I, 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 I suspect I, there'll be that special edition you keep talking yeah, about, I, Chris. I mean, I, 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 that's why I assumed. I know, I know probably why they didn't do it because they'll be like, oh, you just copied that bit then. And yeah. I, the scene, I mean, no, we don't really want to use, but I think the scene is perfect. Also, yeah, the scene in the, in the, in Fellowship is actually a, a vast contraction and, of events. It's not yeah. that Go- Bilbo just finds it and then Gollum notices it's lost. Gollum doesn't notice it's lost until after all the riddles are done. He's had it in his pocket yeah, for a long yeah. time. That is a contraction of events. So they couldn't, they literally couldn't do no, that. No, yeah. Um, well, they, they could have chased, swapped it around, but yeah, I, I know, I mean, they, they obviously chose to keep those two completely separate and, mm keep the fellowship as yeah just the contraction and and then uh, it was a, gr- a great idea as well having Gollum um, like Bilbo look out of the island and then Gollum suddenly gone and then he goes and hides just this over to the right and then suddenly Gollum is on top of him yeah, you can hear his breathing coming yeah. in as well like, oh. what struck me most about this whole sequence was that w- the way Tolkien wrote it originally in 1937 was um, it's a, a creepy guy goblin thing that talks to himself he had not worked out that there are two people in there but Fran and Pippa uh, when writing the script worked out from every line which was saying which mm. yeah. at what and point Smeagol was dominant and what point Gollum was pushing him down what is it precious what is it my name is Bilbo Baggins Bagginses. What is a Bagginses, precious? I'm a hobbit from the Shire. Oh, we like goblinses, bats, and fishes, but we haven't tried hobbinses before. Is it soft? Is it juicy? Now, now, keep, keep your distance. I'll use this if I have to. I don't want any trouble. You understand? Just show me the way to get out of here, and I'll be on my way. Why is it lost? Yes, yes, and I want to get unlost as soon as possible. Oh, we nurse. We know safe paths for hobbies. Safe paths in the dark. Shut up. I didn't say anything. It wasn't talking to you. And it was it was really well handled. And it's almost like the, the biggest kind of showing for Smeagol and Gollum. Like, hey, I've been listening to your guys' um, podcast for uh, 2000, Return of the King. Mm-hmm. And the Smeagol-Gollum conversations are always standout moments from those films. But they're also comparatively quite brief. I think this is the longest we've seen Smeagol and Gollum discussing. Yeah. Um, yes. And certainly, you know, openly discussing with someone else present. Who got and confused just, as well. Yeah, yeah, I just, I loved, like, the entire cinema laughed at the, uh, wasn't talking to Lure. We wasn't talking to Lure. <laughs> yeah, I can't oh. do it quite as well as Alex, but yeah. Um, it was, it was just, it's fantastic to see that character back mm. and to see that character at his, at his peak, essentially, because, you know, when we see him in uh, Lord of the Rings, he's beaten, disheveled, detached from the ring, withdraw, 60 you know, withdraw- years of suffering. 60 years yeah. of suffering withdrawal from the ring yeah. and he's been tortured in Mordor yeah yeah I think the um, the you know the obvious sort of graphical improvements in the last 10 odd years has yeah. had re- really helped this scene because there's far more uh, P. Jackson uh, or oh, Anderson said in the interview there's, there's far more muscles under his uh, you know under his cheeks now so he can mm-hmm. do more sort of very minute facial movements which is needed for 
the you know the, this is the, this is the introduction of Gollum. You have to it's it's seen you have to sort of portray his character perfectly, mm. and it, and they capture that. And this is why this this whole sort of, this scene is my favourite of by far of the film. Because of the uh, long life and strength granted to him by the ring, and because of the different psychology involved, Smeagol here seemed like a young child, whereas in Two Towers onwards, he seems like an old man who's been beaten yeah. and beaten and beaten by this other old man. I also loved the uh, the reworded, but still the same tune. Um, the... No, the the the, the uh, we want so it's all so sweet. To catch a fish. Yeah, to catch a fish. But I can't remember. It was it was about killing a goblin. I can't remember what the words are, but it was brilliant. Two of them doing creepy golem voices. We have a sterile process. Quiet. It doesn't. No. Um. I am. Stupid master, fat hot bastards. <laughs> and that doesn't taste very nice, does that, precious? No, precious, that doesn't. Oh my god. god. I challenge you to a golem off. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I, that's not the first I've been in. <laughs> I'm done, you finished. I need defeat. It was good. Um, but... It shows um, how well Andy Serkis knows his character because um, he did an interview. Uh, where he said he did not watch any of the the films again to sort of refresh the character because he doesn't like watching himself. Oh, good. So to to be able to get back into character so quickly, because I think he also said this was the one of the first scenes they shot, mm. to get back into character so quickly after Ted Odier's just shows how how well he knows the character. Oh, he's he obviously he lapses into it when he's showing off for people in public and yeah. stuff. But <laughs> it was almost like he was. He said he was like parodying himself to begin with, and he, it was like he had to get ownership of the character again. It's um, yeah. and as I've said already, it's one of the most complex um, he- places to get your head into to play a character because so many of the other um, characters in Lord of the Rings are effectively humans with a backstory, but this is someone who has had an extraordinary and horrible life. Yeah. Also, um, I mean, if this is. Uh, Martin Freeman's first scene as Bilbo as well. That's it, that's like the worst scene to start with. Yeah, because that's the iconic uh, scene from this film, yeah. and he he does it perfectly. It is you know you see the progression of his character. Even um, the moaners liked this scene. Yeah. I love well, the way they actually filmed yeah. it though, because I, I, I've heard that that what they did was they get you know to they to, to get Martin to get into the character and say right we're going to run this scene through you and Andy. So you've only got one person to, to beat off, so you know, makes it less complicated. What? And we're just gonna, we're gonna, <laughs> what? Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna run it what through in one go. Um, so they did the whole scene in one go, and then just gave him notes. Rather than stopping and starting every time, it's like, well, can you try that again with a little bit more of this? They just ran the entire scene through in one go. Then said, right, try it a little bit like this, that, and there, and then tried it all over again. And they basically ran the scene like a theatre um, play. Like a, like a, like a proper play. They did it all in one go. And that way he kind of spent more time in the character. And I think that's a great way to kind of get yourself started on a massive movie like this. Yeah. Yeah. And also for this scene that is just two characters playing off each other, you need to sort of keep it going so they can, you know, they can play off each other and develop how mm. they're going to play each character. And as I said back when we did the podcast, the moment we saw the ring, 
was the first time they played Absolutely. the tune of yeah. The Ring. I was so right. <laughs> yeah. And I'm so glad as well because it's perfect. And if it hadn't been, I'd have been like, why didn't they do that? It wouldn't have made any sense if they didn't. It's obvious, really. Hmm. Best way to do it. Best mm. way to do it. And it's, it's, yeah. again, again, displays the genius of Howard Shaw. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they they played the Hammer Dulcimer again while well, for Gollum's theme while he was going. And uh, it, this whole scene felt really familiar. Possibly just because they, they did it pretty much word for word and only uh, augmented it a little bit. But it just it seemed like the way I and everyone else had imagined it. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's because I think it's because um, Andy Serkis does Gollum so well that you can just supplant him into that scene. And yeah. it doesn't really matter what Martin Freeman does, because if Gollum is this, the central character that needs to be perfect and mm. Andy Serkis has got him as near as perfect as you can get. So... Yeah. Um, Although when Bilbo shows mercy and actually holds off on, on, on very easily dispatching Gollum, and that was perfectly set up by uh, Gandalf's, you know, the bravest actors to d- decide not to meet out death, which mm. mirrors what he said to uh, Frodo: "Do not be so eager to deal out death and judgment." Well, that's the thing. When when there's a, it's quite a lengthy pause while he weighs up Gollum's life in his hands and decides, mm. do I take out this creature or do I just let him live? In my head, I can hear Ian McKellen saying, "Here's the, the pity of Bilbo may turn out to save us all." Like the, that whole scene from Moria, that heart to heart between Gandalf and Frodo in Moria mm. uh, in Fellowship of the Ring. That's what I heard in my head. I almost expected that voiceover to come in over that scene yeah <laughs> it actually wouldn't have been out of place it, either it wouldn't have been it would it would have fit I mean you'd have been really confused if this is the first one you're seeing but if you <laughs> well no, not the, really because it's describing what's going on mm. you don't have to hear Frodo necessarily true yeah it, 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 like I say like the, the way they shot it the way that you know it wasn't overdone it was just it was so understated and therefore brilliant it is just a man with a sword and an enemy deciding what to do so maybe the lack of voiceover made that even better and they got the wraith world spot on again mm. so that it wasn't just bilbo's invisible they they got it that consistent with how it has been before much less threatening mm. though yeah. yeah well because the dark lord has not risen back to full power he can't see you yet and also there's no presence of the wraiths either yeah yeah, yeah. I would yes, imagine yeah. by film three there will be. There will more. be, yeah. yeah. Ooh, exciting! First time I've genuinely felt sorry for Gollum in really? a long time because, as much as the thing was like with the with the Lord of the Rings films, I know what's coming. I know what Gollum is. I know that Gollum eventually betrays them and 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 so forth. So I knew Gollum's story going into the into the films. This one, I can't, largely your fault because I've been listening to the um, the Gonzo Planets. Sorry, I'm understand. I under you. Know, I, I was thinking a lot more about the Gollum character and what he has been through, yeah. and then seeing him ripped from that uh, from the from the ring the one thing that he's known the one thing that he's kind of devoted his life to yeah. and the point where he just starts to cry I actually is like just give him the bloody thing back and move on perfect I think that's actually exactly what they uh, they intended the Sharon you kind of caught your breath at, at one point didn't you that this scene brought me to tears it really did I, I think for me though and I mentioned this briefly earlier on the essence of this is that you you know 
what is going to happen to Gollum. You know the end to which he's going to come. You know the viciousness and the meanness that this sets off uh, and, and causes him to come to. And it's like... Well, the way, the way I summed it up was it's like watching um, footage, video footage of a child that you know will grow up to be a murderer. Hmm. The child is there and innocent and all of that terrible, terrible thing that led them to become that, that killer hasn't happened yet. And it's almost like... Although he is actually a killer. He is already. He's yeah, killed Deagle that's, and that's hundreds the irony. of goblins. He's killed Deagle. He's, you know, there are many things that's, that's brought him to this point. There shouldn't so. be any innocence left, and yet. Exactly, and yet. It was almost like I wanted to reach into the film at that point and save him from everything that was going to happen to him afterwards. And it just, it broke my heart. You it can't really save did. him. It, it, you'd have to save him from a shard of his own mind. I know. I know that. That's, that's ultimately why he's doomed as a character. He has to die. Yeah. Because when, when I say I want to... Gollum will never leave Smeagol. Obviously didn't actually believe I could. I know. Just, yeah. But yeah. Where once was light, now darkness falls. Where once was love, love is no more. So, yeah, Bilbo runs out, is reunited. I think in the book, it's much more of a sort of a ha-ha moment, and there's less of that sense of the... Well, it was, it was Thorin saying he really, really, they shouldn't have bought him, he's totally out of his depth, and uh, ultimately him being left behind is not the worst thing that can happen to them. And yeah, that didn't happen in the books. They're just all, well, what's happened, and then... Bilbo, there's a lot more emphasis on Bilbo sneaking past the dwarves and getting into position before he takes off the ring. Yeah. And then someone goes, Mike, there's a lot more emphasis as well on my, you know, it takes a, a keen, quiet foot to get past me. I have sharp eyes and so, whichever dwarf was on, mm. um, on, on watch, you know, he's, he's shocked. That, that, usually it's Barlin. Yeah, Barlin, yeah, yeah, he's shocked that Bilbo can actually get past him. But yeah, that, that they, again, they, they focused on characterization there. And uh, it, it, it had a wholeness the way that that's going to resolve itself very shortly. It's also this is key to Bilbo feeling like he's part of this group as well, and that they actually, you know, some of them really do miss him, and they actually disagree with Thorin too. Hmm. And then there's the um, fifteen birds and five fir trees <laughs> bit, where the the wags and the terrifying Azog turn up again. Fifteen birds. In five fir trees, 
Their feathers were fanned in a fiery breeze. But funny little birds, they had no wings. Oh, what shall we do with the funny little things? Oh, what shall we do with the funny little things? Roast them alive or stew them in a pot. Fry them, boil them, eat them hot. Bake and toast them. Fry and roast them till beards glaze and eyes glaze till hair swells and skins crack. Fat melts and bones black and cinders lie beneath the sky. So the dwarf shall But this was another great reason that they for them to bring in Azog because in the book this is just they are in wolves territory yeah. and wolves chase them up trees whereas here and when wolves just, have a meeting about it yeah, yes, yes. Whereas they they just they happen to be the place the goblins and wolves have a general meeting yeah which is that's terrible it's <laughs> terrible yeah. narrative contrivance yeah. which again but being yeah. written for six year olds in the 1930s who have um, only yeah. got Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and The Wizard of Oz for comparison yeah but the, the, the fact that is, you know, the, the not defending tied... him, it's rubbish by today's standards. Yeah. <laughs> but the fact that he ties straight back into, um, you know, Azog, and you know, like the, there is no respite on this this journey. They are being hunted from the beginning by Azog, by this, you know, these these long running grudges that date back to you know Moria and Erebor and so forth. Because ultimately, you know, like the, the dwarves are chasing a grudge because they want Erebor back. Azog's chasing a grudge because he wants his arm back. Not <laughs> he doesn't want his arm back. Oh but he wants my to get... god, he's going to get Moria back. That's going to be him. Maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe that's how the yes, that's how the goblins get Moria back. Um, oh. But it was, it was, it was great that there was actually context for this rather than just oh, for God's sakes, what's going to happen now? Mm, more you know, it, 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 it made a much better climax for the film because otherwise you're going from a fantastic, massive battle with the goblins to uh, actually there are animals after us, yeah. with, which, yeah. which is pest control at best. And then animals save them from other animals, so it's almost yeah. like dwarves are just um, flags at this point. Having a zog there all the way through kind of takes it away from being a series of coincidences. Yeah, all the way through the film. Yeah, it it brings in an element of agency, Pursuit. really. Yeah. Yeah. Again, they honed it on Lurts and how terrifying that was in, in Fellowship. Just these scouts constantly tracking them, and even you know, no matter how far or fast they run, they're going to be caught in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's also a good story arc because obviously they're gonna. This is gonna get the the big payoff at the Battle of the Five Armies because I know you said yeah. it's gonna get back Moria, but I think probably what's more likely is he they're gonna have a final showdown mm. at the Battle of the Five Armies, and that's maybe so. It might actually not I, be Azog himself, but that's going to be connected with. Oh well, yeah, and I, I think you know they're gonna have a fight. Foreign and him are gonna have a final showdown, and yeah. We know what happens. They could easily have also killed Azog at this point. Gone like that's all we really needed you one film to be, you know, quite threatening. And we'll, we'll create another Darth Maul type character for the next one. Yeah. But unlike yeah. Phantom Menace, they kept their Darth Maul. Yeah, he, mm. he needs to. Yeah, he definitely needs to be set up to be the, the the basically the big evil for the whole thing. I mean, you've got a big dragon, mm. but you if need someone that's actually chance. If he dies before the Battle of Five Armies, they've done it wrong. <laughs> yeah. He needs to be leading the charge, ultimately. He, he, well, yeah, because yeah, I mean, they, they, they have the, the Battle of Armies, they say all the goblins are banded together under this big, under this goblin. Right. But they don't really mention who he is, or I, 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 what I remember anyway. So having. Well, it ain't the great goblin anymore. No, <laughs> yeah, having, having him uh, more characterised in this film perfectly sets him up to take that, that mantle on in the, the, in the third film. Yeah. 
it is also significantly out of the frying pan is a terrible uh, scene in the book because it's, he's throwing pine cones on fire at wolves and they're running around on fire and everyone's going crazy and they're laughing at them from the trees killing any tension and even at one point Tolkien even says there was of course no danger and it's like what? What did you say that for? <laughs> well, you, you say that like the kind of the tension was ruined for me here. By the way, okay, no, the tension was ruined for me pretty much from when they slide down into Goblin Town. Ho ho, my lads! Um, and it was the the one point where I regretted reading the book mm-hmm. because when I went to the Lord of the Rings, I had read the book about five six years beforehand i remembered the gist of the films but there were certain things i I didn't remember i didn't remember helm's deep when i watched the two towers i did not remember helm's deep because it warrants five pages in the book (laughs) and uh an hour of screen time at least in the film when we got to the so i thought you know with the hobbit coming out i'm going to reread the book because i want to know about dol goldor and the necromancer and i want to be able to kind of pick out the bits that you know are new so that i know what's been added and i know what i'm getting you know, for my money in terms of the, uh, in the extra films. The trouble is, and I didn't see this coming until we got there, that completely rids any tension because everything from Goblin Town to the very end of this film, I'm like, okay, yes, and I know that nothing bad is going to happen here because I know how it's going to end. Yeah. I know that everyone survives up until the mountain. Yeah. Therefore, well, yeah, I, again, why put 13 dwarves in and not kill any of them and at the very yeah. end go, oh, five of them died? What? Exactly. I mean, I mean spoil, spoiler alert, I, 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 well, can I ruin something that goes up? Not ruin, but mention an event that happens in the next film. Bomber falls prey to a, a, an evil curse in Mirkwood in the next, in the next ch- uh, section of the book and therefore the next film and is, you know, unable to awaken. In the book, you wonder if he's, you know, ever going to wake up at all. I know there's no tension there because, spoiler alert, he does. <laughs> You know, it's, and it means that there's there's not that thrill and not that excitement, and that's why for me the Hobbit films are never sadly going to be as good as Lord of the Rings. Ah, but you see, if they kill a dwarf in the middle of the next film, you won't know what's going to happen. True, but if it's suddenly Ori dies. Yeah, I, is Ori the Rodney? Rod, Rodney, Rodney can die. I don't mind Rodney dying. Yeah, but you can't. Yeah, but you don't want no, you him to die. You're going to have to. It's going to have to be someone you like, like Buffer. You can't, no, you can't kill James Nesbitt. Exactly. Then you will, you everyone go, no! You can't you kill can't... Ori because he wrote the book in Moria. Oh, so, Ooh, so well, he's the one who, uh, who he's, whose he's head that, falls down the... Yeah, uh, no, no. Oh, he, no he, that, that's, he's, he's the, the one, one that, that sits out next to the tomb, yeah. Did you know that? Yeah. How do you know that? Uh, it, say, it says it in the book, I think. Oh, right. I did not know he that. says he's so, the... He's they a scribe, so that makes sense. He dies next to Barlin's tomb and gets shot by... A yeah, there's a Barlin, him, and a couple of other of the, of the 13 go uh, to Moria. So. Oh, and it's, oh. it's, they definitely mention here. I don't know where it is, but it's definitely... Okay, so Ori's yeah. going to be fine. If James yeah. Nesbitt dies in the next film, <laughs> I'm never going to forgive you. Yeah, um, I, I, as we said, Han Solo should have died at the end of Return of the Jedi. That would have made it a better film. Yeah. I haven't forgiven Dying you for that. I can't watch <laughs> Return of the Jedi anymore because that, that's just not as good an ending. It ruins it! <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can see where you're coming from, but I obviously know these stories very well, and I still think obviously. there's tension. Uh, I, I, well, I, well, adding Anthog as a, as a yeah, main character means they could do anything, really. If, I mean, I, I know the dwarves aren't going to die, but they could be in, in more peril than they are in the book which they are in this film so I mean it depends what you mean by tension and how much tension is enough to 
worry about the characters. I mean, I worrying about dying think is... they're just going to kill five dwarves in battle. I think if well, I think if they are going to just do that, they're going to have it more... Sat- they're going to show far more. Sorry, seven dwarves. <laughs> There's seven dwarves, including so-and-so. That's yeah, I, not a spoil. <laughs> they could do it at different times during the last film, but I don't know. I don't think they're going to do it in the second film because there's there's nowhere that they get in a battle that they could do it. Spiders, elves, men, a they dragon. Can't, yeah, but they can't be killed by the elves because then they would never trust them to do the battle of the five armies. Spiders, the Possibly. necromancer. Yeah, but they don't meet the necromancer. A dragon. They don't meet the dragon. Bilbo meets Smell the dragon. Smell goes absolutely ballistic. <laughs> Looking for them, but um, he ends up destroying all of Lake Town instead. Azog. Yeah. He's got a bigger role to play coming. Yeah, but that, that'll be... I, I Possibly. Mm. But I don't know where they'd put him in the second film. Anyway. Um, <laughs> the, Bilbo gets to show his courage here and takes on Azog yeah. himself, which is a wonderful moment. Entirely creative for the film. Because there's none of that. Because there's no Azog for him to face. Um, and it's the key moment between him and Thorin. And well, yeah, because they, they took it. Um, I mean, in in the book, the key moment is when he sneaks past everyone with the ring, saying, "Oh, he's a good burglar." Yeah. Uh, and then they start trusting him. So they they got rid of that. So then they made him a bit more of a fighter, which someone uh, who would believe in their cause and the fact that he then tells them it's because you don't have a home. And yeah. I miss my home. That yeah, that's, is why I'm fighting for you. That's one. I think they went yeah slightly more fighty just because it's more of a mirror with Frodo in Fellowship, where he sort of starts mm. off just he starts off as Bilbo and he has to do a bit of fighting, but not very much, mm. which is what basically what Bilbo is doing. I suppose they do sort of fake out the kids with uh, Thorin's apparent death, um, analogous to Boromir, and then oh no, he was fine. He was just sleeping. <laughs> That struck me again. Like even even if I hadn't read the book, I wouldn't have believed that he was dead because let's face it, he's like kind of the main character. This is his home they're going for. To kill him yeah. off two films early, well, like they, it would just be daft. That that is, I just just occurred to me that it's very synonymous with Frodo in Moria. We get stabbed. Yeah, like, yes, you know he's not going to die because yeah. he's the big bearer. Yeah, but they added tension. I think that's you know you've got yeah. to have at least. I mean not dying because you, you know exactly who dies in these films well the important thing is ultimately that um, Thorin was about to die and yeah I think, I think so it's, it's real to the dwarves yeah they, they need to add you know, more hurt to the you know because I mean the, the Hobbit book is like oh you know we're, we've got everyone was sat fine, on unfortunately. yeah we got sat on or suffocated a bit by the spiders but nothing actually happened so cuts and bruises and, and like thinking oh that was a bit close is, is what I think what they're going to have to do <laughs> That was a bit so, close, does not wash well, for 22 audiences. <laughs> so the, the, the thing for me was, like, I, I almost wish they'd let... They, they basically brought Bilbo's character development a little further forward quicker than they do in the book. Like, in, it's, in the book, it's the next... At this point, otherwise in the film, he'd just be going, Oh, I'm homesick. True. <laughs> I wish I, I was I, in my I, hobbit hole and dry and having. I can a... I can see why they've done it. I, can, I but I wouldn't have minded them leaving like a little bit of animosity between Thorin and Bilbo for this film, like at the end of the film, simply because it's the next film where Bilbo really starts to step up and voluntarily try and put himself on the line to save the dwarves from the various dangers they meet in Mirkwood, and it's it's that 
it's that whole point. It's a string of adventures in, in Mirkwood that, that really proved Bilbo, not only to himself, but also to the dwarves. So I was kind of surprised that they're all kind of chummy quite early mm. at the end of this film. Well, there needed to be some kind of victory. There needed to be some kind of moment yeah. to mark it. Because otherwise, um, it's just yet another episode that they get away from all too... I mean, they get away from it because of eagles, the deus ex machina of <laughs> Middle-earth. Like, thankfully, there were eagles around, and they only flew us as far as they felt like. It's like, it's right there. Just fly us... Oh, I mean, yet, Oh well, you don't want to get shot by the bows of men. It's like, well, yeah, you don't have to get that close to Lake Town. Just further than here would be nice. Mm. But they don't even talk to the eagles, so there's no explanation given, no no political explanation. So uh, we don't even know if they speak yet. Well, Gandalf yeah, I think did his sending a moth off again, didn't he? Uh, I think, was it like a starling this time? No, no it, it was a moth. It was a moth yeah. or a butterfly. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm editing the um, Return of the King podcast still, and uh, the, the bit where the eagles turn up is like the eagles. Yeah, the eagles. <laughs> so uh, ultimately, the the issue is that Tolkien created these wonderful, helpful creatures, and then uh, a distance that could only be travelled on foot and was incredibly dangerous. And unfortunately, one cancels out the other. So he had to keep creating political reasons why they couldn't just be flown there. And I don't think it stands by today's standards. Because you could just say, well, just take us a bit more of the way then, please. Well, just ask at least. Particularly since by the end of the film, you can see the bloody mountains. Like, yeah, that bit <laughs> over there, drop us in somewhere near there. That'd be What's great. What's it to you? You're going to be flying around all day anyway. The uh, I think the modern equivalent is probably saying that the eagles have quite a lengthy cool-down time. <laughs> <laughs> just, if you're using that argument against the eagles, you could also use that against the elves. Yeah, they should. All they do is bugger off to the west. They don't actually help. Yeah. No, um, the elves piss me off as well. Okay. Selfish, selfish, selfish. <laughs> Elfish. Even though they set up uh, all the major events. Yeah. <laughs> selfish. <laughs> anyway. You're a little too proud of that. Hopes for the future. And it just like briefly oh, thing that you want to say. i just, just say something. You mentioned uh, earlier that they, because they got enough time, they... Uh, can show every bit of the, of the book. This is one bit they they cut out. Was they talking with Gawaii? Yeah, I I, I suspect that will be at the beginning of film two. One of the eagles will fly back and they'll have a protracted conversation, <laughs> which really wouldn't fit at the end of this first film. They could do that, or they just thought that talking eagles would look stupid because um, yeah. there is a problem of uh, pointy beak. They've yeah, already point. had some hedgehogs. In... I think talking eagles would probably have been acceptable. If you get an actor with a serious enough voice, it actually you buy it. Uh, the, the, the guy who did uh, yeah. the, the um, uh, Beragrond in um, uh, War in the North did a really yeah. did the best yeah. job of the entire game. Um, yeah, yeah. They could do or they could do like maybe a flashback later or, or for the next film. That could be a, a gentle opening. But I will say, folks, if you do want a brain dead. Golden Axe equivalent for the modern <laughs> slasher, then go for War in the North. Put it on easy and just carve your way through with the dwarf. There's almost no characterization. None of the voices sound right. There isn't any Howard Shaw music, so it doesn't feel like the wetter Middle Earth. But there's a lot of dwarfy things going on, and you end up de- uh, defending one of the dwarf cities, which I quite liked. And there's quite a lot of eagle stuff, so it actually feels more like The Hobbit than it does Lord of the Rings. But it is utterly basic and it is not a role playing game 
not that it's supposed to be, I suppose it is the equivalent, uh, like, follow-on from uh, the Two Towers and the Return of the King games. Yeah, um, so hopes for the future. I'm um, hoping for a lot more from Radagast the Brown, uh, a, lot, <laughs> a lot more variety from Howard Shaw, yep. a lot more detail on the Del Goldor, um, and I'm hoping that the next year will pass very, very quickly. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I can't wait. Twice no. it's happened so far, and it doesn't. Um, I can't wait till the elves of Mirkwood because their armor looked fantastic. I want to see what what their home looks like because it's just in the Hobbit. It's just a, a cave basically. So hopefully, it looks a lot nicer than that. Uh, I can't wait to see uh, Smaug. Yeah, Smaug. I want to see. Yeah, I want to see Smaug. How they do the voice, whether or not they animate a mouth or it's just more telepathically. Or to give him a snub nose to uh, make his yeah. talking seem more like a mammal. Can't wait to see what they do with the, the Necromancer sub-story, because that, mm. that looks very interesting. Me too. I also want to see a lot of uh, dwarf characterization for other characters. Yeah. Yeah, especially ones that didn't get a lot in this one. Yeah. Maybe just, just all just, of them. <laughs> just Bilbo <laughs> sitting and talking to some of them, you know. Get, get some backstory on them. You could do that in Beyond's house. Oh, I mean, they could put that in the extended edition, frankly. That well, could actually have happened. Yeah. I'm also oh. looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to that too. I'm actually quite curious to see how they do uh, Bayorn. Mm. Because the the way I read it in the book, um, it, it almost seemed like he should have a lot more uh, gravitas to him than... Tolkien actually gave him although admittedly you could say that about several of the scenes in the book um, but um, yeah I'm interested to see how that particular section plays itself out and um, used and to be a bear I took an arrow in the knee <laughs> um, and Billy, Billy Connolly who I originally thought would have made a great Bayorn before I realised quite how Scandinavian the guy was and I was 12 at the time is actually playing what's the name of that dwarf who brings his army Dane yeah I did not know that until I watched one of the. Um, See, that's the that's going to be that's going to be a case of that's not Dane, that's Billy Connolly. <laughs> you over there. <laughs> about Stephen Fry being the master of the Lake Town. Again, Stephen Fry is always Stephen Fry. Like, yeah. Even in the even the Fable games, it's not Reaver, it's but Stephen Fry. Nice. That is because he's not really a good enough actor. <gasps> True. <laughs> but how dare you, sir? But, the one except the one exception with Stephen Fry is when he's Melchit. He's Melchit. But yeah, yeah. I, I'd, I'd rather see I'd rather see Stephen Fry turn up than a character that well, Stephen Fry is trying to be. I'm quite well, I, Stephen Fry can turn up in anything and I'll be happy. For Melchit, I think the moustache is Melchit, and he just it sits on it's him. True. <laughs> it's, it's, he sits it's, behind it's, it and gives it a voice. It's yeah. the moustache and the. <laughs> yes. Oh, there's two completely different Melchits then, with two completely different personalities. One of them's madder than the other. Um, any, anything else we want to see? More women would be nice. Some female characters we can get our yeah. narrative be, teeth there'll into. There'll be some female wood elves and there'll be women in the Juvia. late town. Yeah. As long as they're there and yeah. making it look like, you know, this world actually reproduces not asexually. Mm-hmm. Um, then well, speaking of asexual, we get back the acting tornado that is Orlando Bloom. <laughs> 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 what? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Looking every bit his mid thirties. Yeah. Um, I can't wait to see the Battle of Lake Town by Smaug to see if the bows are right. 
<laughs> Watch this space in one year's time for the moaning to begin. I'm not looking I... forward to like the uh, the Battle of Five Armies and the Battle of Lake Time, simply because they might last longer than a minute this time yeah. around. I was so disappointed, like, and you guys pointed out like massively, yeah, brilliantly in like in the earlier podcasts, like you know that Tolkien doesn't write action. I hadn't picked up on that until I heard you guys. And then when you get to like Smaug gets off in a page, mm. and um, the Battle of Five Armies, which again another thing that I vaguely remember from the Hobbit, and I was like, really looking forward to rereading it. The bloody thing's over in a page and a half. <laughs> it's not the length of his action that I take issue with. It's the fact that he introduces every action scene with, but don't worry, they get yeah. out of the spine. Don't yeah. tell me that. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a massive contrast from having just read um, the second book in Bernard Cornwell's Holy Grail trilogy, which oh, starts yeah. with an 80-page battle for some small part of Yorkshire that doesn't that. have anything to do with the story other than, look, this is all I know about bows and swords. Yeah, Yorkshire. <laughs> Side point: That Grail season is fucking awesome because it's got proper archery in it. <laughs> Following an archer. Oh, um, okay, right. Here is one thing I'm really looking forward to. There are 19 chapters for The Hobbit. This first film covers the first six. The second is called The Desolation of Smaug, which I presume will cover chapter seven, Queer Lodgings, all the way through to chapter 14, Fire and Water, which leaves only five chapters for There and Back Again mostly concerning an almighty ruck which leaves a vast scope of empty film which they can fill concerning the 60 years between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and that is uncharted territory and that mm. excites me like crazy I don't there know was... I don't know I, I, I assume it'll end with Bilbo getting home I don't know that they'll do a massive spiel about what happens between the two I imagine the, the padding will be more on the Dol Goldor storyline and a longer Battle of Five Armies. There is the hunting of Smeagol, which is Gandalf and Aragorn tracking down Gollum. That would It'll be just... the way to bring Aragorn in. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, but that actually takes place, actually, I think it's maybe even in the 17 years between Bilbo leaving and uh, Frodo leaving. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it'll but, feel yeah. odd. I, I think if they, if they, oh, if it feels odd, well, don't do it then. No, <laughs> no, seriously, because you'll get you know, used if, to it. It's if, you, if, you're, the, the, if you're watching, if you're watching it, you're ignoring the Lord of the Rings. Ignoring the Lord of the Rings, the story of the Hobbit. If the story of the Hobbit finishes with Bilbo getting home and having treasure and so forth, to tack well, on, tack on exactly an extra it. half an hour, hour of this is stuff that happened afterwards. It will feel unrelated to the audience that, and yeah, it will yeah to the audience that doesn't know, that doesn't realise there is another trilogy, or doesn't care that there's another trilogy. The it, I'm all for seeing no, the, the hunting. Care that there's another trilogy? <laughs> no, this is true. Um, I'm all for them doing the no, whole hunting of Smeagol. You're insane. Sorry, I'm all for them <laughs> doing the whole hunting of Smeagol thing, mm. but bringing that forward and putting it in because Gandalf doesn't turn up in the Battle of Five Armies till the very last minute. Yeah. So there's plenty of stuff for Gandalf to do and I'm definitely well up for Aragorn coming back and helping him track down I'm Smeagol. I'm fairly certain they're bringing Gollum back for something. They might do it. Yeah. They might as well do it for something which has actually been the same. But it needs to be before Bilbo comes home. It needs to end with Bilbo coming home. Uh, well, and ultimately it needs to end with uh, Bilbo um, finishing his book and like well, starting uh, a Hobbit's Tale by Bilbo Baggins, and then look. Uh, oh, that's it. Does he? Does he finish the book? Oh yes, no. He, he takes he, it with him to Rivendell, doesn't he? He does. He finishes yeah, yeah. it while he's at Rivendell. Yeah, he starts okay. writing it in the extended cut, because it? it's the concerning Hobbits. 
Yeah. So maybe it needs to actually finish with Bilbo being old in Rivendell. Maybe. Hmm. I'd also like to see an aged Gimli with wispy old white hair getting into a boat with uh, a not at all aged Legolas. <laughs> I Take back see... on the west, young man. Um, I can see uh, showing Balin and and the rest going to Moria. Yeah, and the end sort of fading out there. Do, yeah, finishing uh, Bilbo's story and then going back to the Lonely Mountain and then showing them setting forth and coming to the the mirror mirror and just and just going through there and then fading to black there because you or, know or, what happens to them or maybe them attempting to take back Moria during because the, the, the last chap, two chapters is Bilbo just riding home with Gandalf we don't know what happens during that long journey home and it's a long journey yeah. maybe them taking Moria back or at least heading back to Moria during that section I think we really do need to see something to tie the Moria sections um, in, in both worlds together because this was something that struck me while we were watching it actually when Gimli takes them into Moria and he's talking about um, you know Balin feasting them and everything that's practically the same level of, of sort of hospitality and, and civilization that they had in um, Erebor yeah. So how do you go from it being overrun by goblins back to that? That's that's something mm. I'd like to see. That's also, treasure. they're going out of their way, as I said earlier, to link Smaug and Sauron. I'd like to see them explore that further. Because the point that ultimately it would appear that uh, Sauron comes back into the world at the point Smaug leaves it. Yeah. Maybe he's in the Horcrux. <laughs> oh, dude. <laughs> That's not the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That really isn't. He's Nagini. Yeah. Oh my Maybe. god. That's <laughs> Tol that's Weta copying rolling copying Tolkien. <laughs> okay, let's leave it on the uh, Song of the Misty Mountain by uh performed by Neil Finn. Uh, when I first heard this Overtones of Lemmywinks popped into my head. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, I, I... in the misty mountain, carry on with Lemmywinks. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard a clip oh, I of really this. Like it. Yeah, I heard a clip of this before I watched the film, and I thought that sounds awful. Um, well, and then, really because it... it's been done in such a fantastic base yeah. way, wouldn't Leonard Cohen have been perfect? I don't know, but carry on. But no, he does. But, he does it in a different yeah, way. It's in context of the film it's good yeah I still don't really like it listening to it on the soundtrack because there's a clap machine uh, which is. I don't like I but the the what sounds like Maori chants in the background is fantastic it's yeah that's good and it really um, feels like a dwarf song the, yeah the whole of it's good I just don't like the clap machine it's just like, like why are they clapping like that I don't really understand at least obviously because it, it sounds like a machine in the, what's that um, what's that thing where it makes your voice go like this <laughs> Uh, this uh, Neil Finn actually was part of Crowded House. Uh, was it an Australian band show? I think they're from New Zealand. New Zealand, even better, Kiwi. Uh, it's the least of the four songs. Uh, shut up, shut up, Chris. <laughs> and um, it's it's not a massively powerful way to end uh, the movie. But like I said, the more I listen to it, the more it grows on me. There are, of course, worse ways to end and worse songs to end on. The deadly serious BBC radio plays ended on this, Minstrel of Gondor. See, Eowyn, 
The darkness has passed. And look how a mighty eagle comes to us from out the east. By the way, not making that up, someone at the BBC said, yep, that's alright, that'll do, that'll be how we finish the uh, Lord of the Rings radio plays, that is exactly what we want. And I'd put money on that pillock being the one who sang the theme tune to Blackadder the second. And of course, how could we possibly forget the wonderful Leonard Nimoy song, the Ballad of Bilbo Baggins, which I'm surprised Zachary Quinto did not do a cover version of this year. Uh, if you've never heard this song, for the love of God, YouTube it. The video is something else. In the middle of the earth, in the land of Shire, lives a brave little hobbit whom we all admire. Long with height, fuzzy with his toes. Lives in a hobbit hole and everybody knows him, Bilbo. Sorry, I just mentioned yep. I liked the way um, they ended it with the sort of the zoom to uh, to Smaug waking up. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that Fantastic was a nod. End. Yeah, I think that was a nod uh, to because there was lots of people who you know not didn't know about Lord of the Rings coming out of the first Lord of the Rings saying, "Is that it?" Yeah. Um, so I think that was a bit of a yeah. There's more, uh, but but not basically saying come you know uh, come back for the continues. dragon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was a good way of doing it, just to sort of, you know, to wake him up as a character. 
People came out of fellowship saying, "Is that you know what? Yeah. Can't relate to those people." No, I know. I, but <laughs> I think that's that they just try to see SA you know, There is more. Uh, came out the same going, That was the greatest film I've ever seen in my life. It might still be the greatest film I've ever seen in my life. You know, the people going, "I wanted total resolution for this first part of the trilogy." <laughs> what do you want? A medal ceremony? Chewy, <laughs> <sighs> sure you don't get one. Okay. Um, <laughs> Any more on this cut down, very brief overview <laughs> theatrical four hour edition of uh, the. Uh, I suppose you know, may as well just put on this better journey. It's longer than you might think. <laughs> nope. Nothing nope. to add? Okay. We will most definitely be back to talk about this. Um, that will be all from us tonight, but as a special treat we will be recording a Lord of the Rings Sound of Gonzo show to give you guys, without access to the extended soundtracks, a taste of the isolated and complete scores you're missing out on. We'll be back with that in a few days' time and a follow-up extended edition podcast to an unexpected journey when film two is released a year from now. Many thanks to my guests, James Batchelor and Chris Easton of Gameburst. Cheers. Paul Gibson of Gonzo Planet. Thank you. And Sharon Shaw of Dorkcast. Thank you very much. And we will, of course, finish on The Song of the Lonely Mountain, performed here by Neil Finn. See you soon. Happy New Year. Far over the misty mountains rise Leave us standing upon the height What was before We see once more Is our kingdom A distant light Fiery mountain Beneath the moon The words unspoken Will be there soon Oh, my son.